Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Live. We will wait a few minutes here while people shuffle in. Uh, but <clears throat> as we do so, we wanted to take this opportunity to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. We hope you had a happy holidays. We hope that your Christmas Eve and Christmas Day were filled with good family, good friends, good food, all of the usual accoutrements that we expect from the holiday season. And we will be getting into some of the deeper meanings and significance of this particular holiday a little bit later as we do a recap of the past few live streams so that all of you have an opportunity to interact and ask any questions or ask for any clarification, what have you. We apologize for having had to cancel last week's live stream. As many of you know, we look after our elderly father and his health is not, um, let's say, in the greatest circumstances. So uh, we had a bit of a, a concern with him last weekend and last week. And it, his condition kept getting worse and worse. And it was very likely that we would have to take him into the hospital. So we uh, we could not we could not proceed with the live stream last Monday, but we are here now, and you are all here now. So we do have quite a bit of information to cover in terms of a recap. So we may as well jump into it. <clears throat> the first. topic that we're going to review is this notion of shadow work. This term, shadow work, originates from Carl Jung and his, his efforts in the field of psychology and his work specifically on what he referred to as the shadow, the shadow self, and the integration of the shadow self. And what he defined as a human being, and his understanding of things such as the Tao. So, we may as well... <clears throat> um, jump into this because again we have quite a quite a bit of content to go through and unfortunately jung's understanding or the way jung wrote about or passed on what he knew because he was an esotericist he was a, a mystic and it seems as though he was searching for a kind of secular way 
of conveying certain knowledge, certain information. But it is clear that contemporary psychologists misread Jung's work. They, in general, misunderstand. Even uh, popular psychologists such as uh, oh, what's his name? Just he just left my name. It left my mind. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a is a popular <clears throat> Jungianist or Jungian psychologist, and even he has rather erroneous conclusions to draw from Jung's work. And these erroneous conclusions have filtered their way into the new age and into this term shadow work, which we hear all the time. And tonight, or pardon me, yeah, well, for some of you in Europe, it's tonight. <laughs> for us, it's this afternoon. Uh, today, we are going to delve into this matter and comprehend the real nature of shadow work and look at the practical ways that we can perform this so-called shadow work without falling into the common fallacies and without proceeding with the wrong beliefs about what it's all about. So let us not... Uh, waste any more time. Carl Jung, of course, we're going to begin and end with some of his famous quotations. The first one is, everyone carries a shadow, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. The second is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. This is probably one of the most famous of Carl Jung's quote, quotes especially from the perspective of an esotericist, from the perspective of a mystic. Comprehending that we have a subconscious mind and that subconsciousness rules us. It it is what directs our actions, our beliefs, our desires, meaning our cravings and aversions. These are presented to us in our conscious mind in a certain way. I want this. I don't want that. I am this. I am not that. I'm one of them. I'm not one of those. I'm not that other that's identification. Or this is mine. This is mine and no one else's. And I can't live without this. Right? These are the ways in which identifications and attachments and desires are presented to us in the conscious mind. But subconsciously, subconsciously, the so-called shadow has a very different agenda. And it is presenting us this I as a form of hypnosis. And that is what puts our consciousness to sleep. 
because we believe in those thoughts, in those emotions, in those sensations in the body. We believe what is presented to us and we take it as sacrosanct. We take it as fact and more importantly, we take it as coming from ourself. I want this. I don't want that. I, 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 I. Meanwhile, there's an entire legion of psychological aggregates constituting this so-called shadow self, which have their own agenda. And we will get into all of this. But Carl Jung here, in these two quotes, is expressing a fundamental intuitive knowledge that this is the case. Now, he's using the term unconscious. We do have an unconscious mind as well. And he somewhat conflates the two, unconscious and subconscious. Or he's, again, probably for simplicity's sake. And also possibly to remove himself even further out, out of the shadow of Freud, who, of course, had his multi-layered self of ego, superego, and id. And Carl Jung probably wanted to get away from this triple order self where there was this sub, there's this id, there's this underself, and then there's this overself, this superego, Freud called it. So Jung just referred to it as conscious and unconscious. This is not going to be, we don't have the time, number one. And secondly, there's no point in making this a deep dive into Jung's work. We are only going to address the small area of Jung's work, which affects this notion of shadow work. It's a very popular notion that's, that, 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 that's a very popular practice that people believe they are doing. They talk, you hear the term all the time. They, people talk about it all the time. But what is it really? Here we have Jung's worldview of the self. We have the the outer world, the inner world. We have the persona, the ego, and the shadow, and then the animus anima, which the collective unconscious and the animal self, the animal... uh, impulses. So this is how uh, Jung saw the universe. And as you can see, the shadow and the animus anima are part of this collective unconscious, which Jung was very strongly a believer in that. And that we had this. So this is in our consciousness. And he felt that the ego, that's what he referred to as the self, or the 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 believed self, but he also referred to, he also believed that there was a self that was beyond the ego. But where Jung falters is that he took a Taoist, he applied Taoist philosophy to 
the self. And as you can see, the self is on the border between what he calls the ego, the persona, and the shadow and the, the, the animus anima. And this becomes clear when we begin looking at the actual archetypes themselves. So for simplicity's sake, we're going to take the most simple and most recognizable of all the archetypes, that of the hero and the villain. And the reason why we say it's the most simple and the most recognizable is because it's universal. In every hero's journey and in just about every traditional story and certainly every traditional uh, adventure story or scripture or, or where we, we have a, an archetypal hero, there is usually an adversary which we refer to as the villain, and, and Carl Jung refers to as the villain. So we're going to be looking specifically at these two archetypes. But what we are going to be sharing and what we are going to be discussing about the relationship between these two archetypes, hero and villain, applies to all of the archetypes. Now, what Carl Jung says is that the true human being is one who integrates both the hero and the villain. And he, is, he identifies with neither, but he integrates both. And in the space between those two, he achieves mastery. This is his worldview. This is his, his vision his philosophy of, of psychology. So <clears throat> this shadow work thing leads to memes such as this one, where because of this notion that to be whole and to be complete, we must integrate both our light self and our shadow self. And we must recognize that to be a whole human being, you must be both. Leads to memes such as this one of where all those positive thinking new agers and only want to focus on the positive and they never want to look at the ne negative. And then you see people who embrace this Jungian notion of, of integrating the shadow, right? Forcing these people to not only face their shadow, but so-called integrate their shadow. We have a couple quotes here from a contemporary website that tries to embody the, the modern contemporary understanding of this notion. The idea of shadow work then is acknowledging all the parts of the psyche effectively bringing what is dark into the light. You can't have balance without both the dark and the light. Shadow work actualizes living a multifaceted life that incorporates the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the embarrassing, the uncertainty, the uncertain, all of it. <clears throat> this is from a, a uh, child psychology website or, or one of these self-help sort of pediatrics website of, of how to be a good parent. So they're explaining Jungian psychology 
to parents and, and how to create whole children. So another, so here's where things could get a little too, um, how do we say this, paranormal for some people. In certain camps, the shadow self is referred to as the demon. The idea is that whatever parts ourselves we disown turn against us, manifesting as a sort of paranormal entity. That entity can operate on its own without our knowledge, which can result in situations we end up regretting. It's all very Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but demonic. So again, the idea here is that if you ignore your shadow, your shadow becomes a demon, becomes this mythological or, or, or uh, superstitious paranormal entity unless you integrate it. This is the what they're getting at. This is what the implication is. Uncovering the things festering just below the surface can lead to healing. And healing can lead to wholeness, which in turn translates into things like improved relationships and a clearer perception of self. How? Why? No one ever seems to mention this. Devout believers in shadow work even insist it can lead to enhanced energy and renewed physical health. It actually makes sense if you think about it. When you're emotionally tapped out, it can make you feel exhausted in every way. The argument here is that if you aren't embracing your full authentic self, you're living in a perpetual state of emotional overexhaustion, overextension. Cue constant fatigue. How? Why? No one ever mentions that. No one ever talks about that. So sure, shadow work is worth a shot. You can always work with an expert or simply choose to stop it if it truly does turn out to not be your thing. Who knows, though? Maybe you'll unblock something inside and discover an untapped fount of physical, emotional, and spiritual energy. How? Why? They never mention that. The big issue here is that they're, that they're dancing around. And it's the question of what it means to be a true human being. Ego versus egos. Integration of the shadow self. Application of the sexual force. These are <clears throat> what need to be explored and understood to really have an appreciation of what this shadow work is and what does it really mean to integrate the shadow self and how we do this and what are the mechanics, the metaphysical, esoteric, scientific mechanics behind this so-called shadow and shadow work which you never hear anybody talk about. They said, oh, I'm doing the shadow work. So one of the notions here is that 
there's a fundamental misunderstanding in, in, in Jungian psychology as to what a true human being is. What he defines as a true human being is not a true human being, is an intellectual animal. So what we need to do is look at the actual origin of our shadow self itself. What created this shadow? When we talk about doing shadow work, we need to understand the origin of this shadow that we need to work with. So again, let's look at this notion of the hero versus the villain. And what Carl Jung says, integrating these two <clears throat> creates mastery. This is what he refers to as integration. <clears throat> well, when we look at the ray of creation, the omnipresent ray of Kidunok, it descends down the tree of life into the ninth sphere. And to be working as an upright human being in that ninth sphere in each of our three brains, mind, heart, and body, we're said to be a 999 because we're working with upright sexual force. We're using that sexual energy in, in an upright way, in a Christic way. The inverse of that is 666. That's when the creative force becomes a destructive force. And we are said to fall. And we become a fallen human being. And that's where the origin of the inverted pentagram and the origin of the 666 denoting Satan. It's where the expression being down and out comes from because if we work with the sexual force in the negative way, it flows down and out of us, creating the Kunda buffer organ, also known as Satan's tail. The creative force becomes a wasted force. <clears throat> and it's our many egos which make this happen. Because they play this game of King of the Hill that enslaves our consciousness and consumes our vital energy, the sexual force. And our egos do this through, as we mentioned, craving, I, yeah, I want this, and aversion, I don't want that. Through identification, I am the greatest, and rejection, I am the worst. And through combinations with one another, through rationalization, they will like me if I do this. And irrationality, they all hate me. 
yes, it's, our egos are not our friends. They are what caused the hero to fall and become a villain. This is what is missing from Carl Jung's worldview. He believes these architects are static and exists all the time. But what causes them to activate, what causes them to leap into activity, are the psychological aggregates themselves, the egos themselves. And one cannot be using the sexual force positively and negatively simultaneously. One is always bouncing back and forth between these two archetypes, between hero and villain. Why there's someone either being awake or they're being asleep. Because you can't not, like, water can't flow in both directions at the same time. It's flowing one direction or another direction. That's, that's the way it is. But if we bounce back and forth between two polarities, between hero and villain, and we're feeding our inner villain and we're feeding our inner hero, then we become what G.I. Gurdjieff referred to as a Hasnamusan, which is someone who is awakening with a dual center of gravity. They're awakening as both a six and a nine. And if people perform shadow work under the false notion that this is what Carl Jung meant about integrating the shadow, that you have to be as much a villain as you are a hero, then what you are going, what, you, what are you creating of yourself as a Hasna Musun? And from Hasna Musun, it is very, very, very difficult to proceed in a positive way on the spiritual path. From, Has, from the point of Hasna Musun, <clears throat> it is far easier to descend into a full-blown black magician or awakened demon. <clears throat> This is what's missing from Jungian psychology. Because you can achieve mastery as a villain. We call them black magicians. In other words, your shadow is not your friend. So what then is shadow work, really? <clears throat> Let's go back to our diagram here, understanding that we are drawing on some of the terminology from the modern mythology known as Star Wars, because Star Wars is very archetypal and Star Wars very vividly denotes the light side and the dark side. So, with the visage of Darth Vader and Darth Sidious, the Sith very clearly denote the shadow, right? The shadow, the dark side of the Force. The Force being the ray of Okidanak, the Christic Force, which descends from the Absolute. That's the Force behind everything in the universe. And if we use it in a positive way, like the Jedi, we are nines. And if we use it in a negative way, like the Sith, we are sixes. It's all, it's all there in Star Wars. And we have a two and a half hour video on the Skywalker apocalypse 
called the Skywalker Apocalypse, outlining all of this in detail. So, so here we have the Sith, and that's, again, the Sith and Six is not by accident, right? We also have Order 66 from the prequels. But so now what? We're here in this situation, right? We have a shadow. We all know that we have a shadow. So, so what do we do? Do we just go with it and just fall? Well, step one is to grow some backbone. We need to become an upright human being. And to be an upright human being, you have to be able to sit up. You have to be able to stand up. And what uh, allows us to do that is our spinal column and our willpower. So the staff of Moses, the staff of Gandalf, even Ray's staff in the Rise of Skywalker, they represent the backbone, the spinal column, The next thing we have to do is we have to work with our individual Lucifer to illuminate the shadow, to transform from the phantom menace to the force awakening. We have to shed light on the darkness. And this, we work with our individual Lucifer because Lucifer means light bearer. And Lucifer here held aloft in the hand of Lady Columbia, that's our individual divine mother who gives us everything that we need on the path and Lucifer works with our divine mother to shed light on our defects and vices on our shadow on the egos that are responsible for those shadowy archetype archetypes to express themselves through us this is why Lucifer is, is one of the reasons why Lucifer is associated with evil by the way because it's a very common uh, event that you know people shoot the messenger. And the ego does not like being seen. The ego wants to remain in the shadows because it can it can do whatever it wants from the shadows. So, oh, press the wrong button. Okay. And bringing light to the shadow is the first step with what we call the analogous ultimate methodology or the alm of life. And that's mindfulness. So we say mindfulness, self-observation. We look at ourselves. We observe ourselves. We need to bring that light of consciousness to our shadow. That's step one. And we do so by observing our three brains. And the second step is to perform a diagnosis. What is the ego that's causing this particular behavior, this particular mindset, this particular emotion, this particular sensation, this desire, this craving, this aversion, whatever the case may be, we need to diagnose the problem, the cause It's not enough to know that we have a villain inside of us. To embrace our inner villain. What does that mean, really? 
what causes that villainy to come out in us? Archetypes are just, they, they exist, they're patterns, but they, they, need, they need a foundation. They need energy to manifest themselves. And the entities that work for mechanical nature that invert the creative force from positive to negative and empower the negative archetype, the inverse archetype to the hero are the egos. If we can get at the underlying egos, then the inverse archetype, the villain, the inverse villain can't manifest. Okay, we have a quick question. We have some uh, a quick question here. Does a sex worker automatically are working with inverted forces or can it be done in a 999 way? Well, it depends. That's a that's a tough question. Is a sex worker indulging in the orgasm? Certainly, the sex workers clients are indulging in the orgasm so it's not so i mean that's goes without saying that their that their clients are working with the sexual force in an inverted way uh sex worker is obviously not high on the list of preference of uh, preferred occupations for someone on the spiritual path but if they don't indulge in orgasm, if they don't indulge their lust, if they don't waste the sexual force, in other words, it's sketchy. It's on the border. It's right on. It's, it's, it's difficult to say. To be to be to be honest we it's not like we know many sex workers but um, it all comes down to whether or not they are wasting their own sexual force that they are helping others waste theirs that's a choice that their clients make they don't make that choice for their clients. However, what we can say is that sexual alchemy should be performed between a monogamous couple and that having sexual union with many, 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 many different people is not helping matters. And many of the sexual acts that sex performers, uh, sex workers are required to perform in the day-to-day -day duties of their career uh, are inherently an inversion of the sexual force. 
and having many, many different sexual partners, it's not by no means, by no means is it in any way, shape or form a, a uh, positive or, or conducive to the work that we're talking about doing here. It's, that's uh, just, that's just the, the nature of this, the nature of sexuality. It's the most potent, powerful force in the universe that we have to work with. And it's not something to be toyed with. And it's not something to be Um, it's not something to be degenerated. Okay, so diagnosis, the second step, is self-exposition, right? Taking note of the psychological aggregator egos responsible for whatever harm, whatever suffering that we're dealing with. Next is analysis. And by analysis... We're referring to journaling or meditation, visualization, retrospection, introspection, contemplation. This is not thinking. We are not talking about an intellectual analysis. To meditate on an ego or contemplate or journal, it's allowing an intuitive information to come forth from our higher self from our innermost. Analysis must be performed by the consciousness, not by our monkey mind. Because you can sit there and intellectualize and theorize all you want. But the, you will never arrive at the next step, which is synthesis. And that is the comprehension, the conscious comprehension of knowing how the particular egos are harming us and others. This is a moment of insight. This is a flash of lightning in the dark of night. Buddhists might refer to it as. It is, it is a shamadi. It is a moment of ecstasy, a moment of connecting via awakened consciousness to the source of infinite knowledge. <clears throat> this process of comprehension, the synthesis of gnosis, the synthesis of self-evident experiential knowledge, takes time, it takes patience takes infinite patience, and you cannot want to achieve it. The more you desire comprehension, the more it will elude you. Because desire comes from the ego and is antithetical to comprehension. The more you are in your head or in your heart, in your, in, in your inferior emotional center, desiring something, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. You, the more you're stressing, the more you're tensing, the more you're bringing your, your false self, your ego self to bear. And you're closing off 
the connection to your higher self. Your higher self cannot deliver to you that which you need to know if you are so busy wanting to know it. That's why meditation is so important in practicing meditation and visualization. The actual process of steps three and four require the ability to relax, concentrate, visualize, and retrospect upon, to replay the events of a particular moment in our lives where some unwanted behavior, painful behavior, or thought process was coming up and taking hold of us and causing ourselves and others around us suffering. So when you have those moments where you go, oh, I was possessed by fear, I was, gri I was gripped by anger, I had a moment of jealousy or I had a moment of, of gluttony, a moment of weakness. To be able to go back and replay that in meditation, very relaxed, without judgment, without elaboration, without thinking or judging or commenting, or because the mind will want to comment. The mind will want to judge. But just ignoring all of that. And also without reliving the event. Without forcing oneself to, to go through all the motions emotionally and mentally and physically in the, in the imagination. We just want the facts. Without having to relive the trauma, relive the pain. That's not helpful in meditation. We just want to relive and remember what was going on in our mind, in our heart, and in our body without indulging it. And if we do this in time, and it takes great patience, this is not easy to do, we will achieve comprehension of a particular ego that was rearing its ugly head And once we comprehend and go, the next step <clears throat> can take place, which is catharsis. This notion that the comprehended e uh, ego can be eliminated. Because our, its purpose has been served. The lesson has been learned. What we needed to learn from that ego, we've learned it. Now that ego can be eliminated. And it follows that if an ego is eliminated, then what follows is liberation. Our best self, our highest self, our true self is freed from the harm and negative influence of that particular eliminated ego. And the end result is self-knowledge, strength, resilience, growth, wisdom, self-actualization, knowledge of our best self. Because the liberation from the ego 
is the little consciousness that was bottled up inside that ego is freed. And the more consciousness that's freed, the more consciousness we have to work with. The more consciousness we have to work with, the stronger, more resilient, more wise, and more aware of our true self we become. Because knowledge, true knowledge, gnosis, is a product of free consciousness. Free consciousness is that consciousness which has been liberated from the ego. So this process, this process is the process to free oneself from the so-called shadow. And when we look at it, <clears throat> as a cycle going around and around, what we discover is that the shape of this process is not a circle, but a spiral. Because each time we go through this process, if we eliminate ego and we liberate just a little bit more consciousness, then as you can see, it's a, it's a growing spiral. And if you cut the sides off a spiral, it looks a little bit like a ladder. And this is where you get Jacob's, uh, Dante's ladder and Jacob's ladder. You get the archetype of the descent into the labyrinth in Dungeons and Dragons, where you go down into the dungeon, you slay monsters, and you find treasure, and you gain experience points, and you gain levels. But you have to go down, and then you come up, and you go down, and up, and down, and up. And each time you can go into a deeper level of the dungeon and the lower into the dungeon you go the more difficult the monsters the greater the treasure the more the experience points the higher the levels you can attain so the deeper you go down the higher you can go up that's dante's ladder jacob's ladder that up and down and up and down but that up and down is really spiral the same thing of uh, Perseus and Theseus descending into the labyrinth to fight the Minotaur and the Medusa. And again, that ladder, what looks like a ladder, if you cut the sides off, but it's really a spiral. It's going around the alm of life. It's doing these seven steps over and over and over and over and over. And each time you're going deeper into the shadow. You're finding greater villains, greater villainy, to overcome, to comprehend and eliminate and free more consciousness to gain more self-knowledge. So you are, you are, as Carl Jung wanted you to do, becoming aware and acknowledging and being conscious of your shadow, of what is unconscious. You are making it conscious and you're making it conscious in the most vivid, meaningful way, in the consciousness itself. And you are acquiring self-knowledge. You are, you are recognizing your capacity to be the villain. What's more, you're comprehending what causes you to fall from hero to villain. And as you comprehend that and you regain the consciousness that your inner egos, your inner villain, 
was hoarding for itself. That is what you're integrating into yourself. The knowledge and the consciousness. Not the villain itself. Knowledge, gnosis of the villain. You're not, the, you're not integrating the egos themselves. You're integrating the consciousness that those egos were enslaving. And you're integrating the knowledge of how those egos were causing suffering to you and others. Right? The knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree of knowledge. That is what you're integrating. The knowledge that you can be the villain, that you have that capacity, that ability, and that you know what causes you to become a villain, how you fall. This is what you're integrating from the shadow. This is the shadow work. This is how you work with the shadow. The spiral, of course, is in seashells. It's in hurricanes. It's in galaxies. This is a universal constant, the alm of life. It's, it's the fundamental meta-paradigm behind all phenomena in the universe. This is a visualization of the 4D hypercube. If you meditate on this visualization, you will see it's nothing but spirals. So, once we, as or as we practice the alm of life, and as we do this so-called shadow work, and we work, we, the, the other step is to work with the creative force, the sexual force. And that is to work with the sexual energy in the ninth sphere. And this is a, we're going to skip this about um, holocrons, the, uh, the Jedi and the Sith holocron. But if you actually put a Jedi holocron and a Sith holocron together, they create the, the nine-sided cubic stone or the philosophical stone. If, you, if you're interested in knowing more about the Star Wars connection to all of this, we can recommend our two-and-a-half-hour video on the Skywalker apocalypse because all of this is... We go through this step-by-step. Step. So we're talking here about raising the Kundalini, raising the sexual force, illuminating all of the chakras and alighting the flame of the Holy Spirit above the top of our heads as the Pentecostal fires that the apostles experienced. It's also the halo that every saint and every angel and every Buddha has about their heads. These symbols mean something, right? And it's not just, oh, that's a divine being. No, it's a practical symbol describing practical, metaphysical, scientific processes. But as you can see, right, there is a lot more to shadow work from a metaphysical, scientific, practical perspective than what Carl Jung or what anybody in the New Age talks about. Oh, I'm doing shadow work. Really? Are you? How? 
this is how the ray of Akitanak returns up through the tree of life by way of how it descended. This is what's represented by Ray's illuminated uh, lightsaber, which is gold in color at the end of uh, Rise of Skywalker. The activation of the sexual force is by virtue of the cross, the crossing of masculine and feminine. So in Arthurian legends, we have Excalibur, which is in the philosophical stone, and it's Excalibur. And there you have the blade and the chalice, or you know, you, as we put together the Sith and the uh, the the Jedi holocrons, we create the the nine-sided philosophical stone. These contain the most closely guarded secrets of the Jedi Order. But here we bring together the blade and the chalice to form the X, the cross, Excalibur. The X is the law of three because the X is a cross. We have the vertical masculine, the phallus, the positive action, holy affirmation. The horizontal is the feminine, the uterus, the negative passion, holy negation, and then union, is sex, neutral, creation, holy reconciliation. This also can be represented as the EO. It's also a mantra, EO, but it's also the, the, that EO can be represented this way, but there's a problem with this visualization and that is the origin, the center, is separate from the circumference. So the alpha and the omega are present, but they're separate. And that doesn't work. We can't have that. So what's the solution? We put a twist in everything. And now the origin is connected to the circumference. We have the holy eight, the sign of infinity, which is the origin of the wedding bands. The relationship between the Christ and the law of three is intimate. The relationship between masculine, feminine, and union and the Christic force is intimate. The entire universe is sexual in this way because the ray of creation creates in this way. And here are some other symbols. We have the Caduceus of Mercury on the, on the right, and we have the Tao, of course, on the left. And many of you who, uh, who have uh, follow us on Facebook will have seen these memes in various forms. So the serpent, we have Moses raising a serpent of bronze on the staff. Bronze is an alchemical union of two metals, copper, which is feminine, and tin, which is masculine. And because we are coming off of Christmas here, we might as well point out that the ray of Akitanak rising up to the absolute is represented by the garland on the Christmas tree. And the star atop the Christmas tree is the upright pentagram and of course, the Christmas 
decorations themselves represent the sephirah on the tree of life. At the base of the tree, we have the philosophical stone. Every Christmas tree needs a stand. And so that, that heavy foundation stone, the philosophical stone, the cubic stone, the cornerstone of the ninth sphere. That's bizarre. Okay, let's jump back. And then we have the three wise men or the three kings who bring their gifts. And their gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But these are these three wise men are symbolic. And they're symbolic of our three brains, our mind, heart, and body. Which, if we are wise, we, we bring to the Christ, we bring to the work, this so-called shadow work. We're at the one hour mark and we notice we have some questions and some people indicating that they have to go. So let's see if we can't. Uh... Okay, let's get this one first. Um, hey, Atlas, can I ask you a personal question? You cannot answer if you can't, but how did you meet your partner in love and gnosis? Since gnosis is not for everyone and explained on a first date, as a protocol, mostly causes people to live in disappointment. Um, to leave, I meant. Oh, so it's. Uh, we're not sure what you meant by to leave, I meant. Um, to leave in disappointment. Okay, all right. Um, Believe it or not, what well, we're currently single, okay? So we currently have no uh, love and life partner in Gnosis. But we did for a time. And that individual literally showed up at our door. Believe it or not, we gave our notice that to our landlord that we were moving out of a, an, uh, of our apartment and we had forgotten that the landlord had said that he would be bringing someone by at a certain time it was around dinner time five or six o'clock something like that and we had already prepared uh dinner and we had forgotten that the landlord was bringing someone over to the to the apartment and so there was a knock at the door, and then I, then we remembered, oh, slipped our mind, the landlord's coming with someone. So we opened up the door, and there was the landlord, and in walked this beautiful young woman. And, and the landlord said, oh, you're home or whatever, and, you know, is it okay if I show the place? I said, sure, it's okay. And she was looking around, you know, checking out the apartment, and then she walked by our, um, our altar. She's looking at the altar and look at our, our, our picture of the creation of Adam on the wall. And she saw the, our sword and our copy of Peace of Sophia. And 
she, all of a sudden she spun around like with eyes wide open. She goes, you're a Gnostic. <laughs> and I said, yes, 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 I am. How, how would you know that? She goes, she goes, I'm a Gnostic. I'm so-and-so and I work for Ajax and I'm here to set up a blah, blah, blah. And she, and she just started going off like a monkey in a tree. And, and I, and I said, well, listen, why don't you stay for dinner? I just prepared some dinner. Why don't you stay and have dinner? And she said, yeah, sure. That would be great. So we, you know, I told the landlord that, you know, she's going to stay and have dinner. And that's how it began. She literally showed up at my door on my doorstep. And um, unfortunately, when we finally broke up, it was because, and this is a quote from her. She said, you've shown me a type of no, uh, gnosis that I, I, I could only ever imagine. Like, I never even imagined. She goes, but, but the path that you're on, I can't follow you. I can't, I can't come with you. She said, I'm, I'm married to, I'm married to Ajak. That's what she said. And to be fair to her, she said that early in our relationship, she said, I'm married to Ajak. You need to know that. And, uh, so I said, that's, that's fine. You need to do what you need to do. You're on your path. You need to do what your heart tells you to do. I'm not going to tell you to do any different. And it just eventually got to the point where it was clear that the path that we were on she could not follow she said i'm we're, i'm just not i'm just not at that level i just can't you know i just can't where you're going i can't go with you so it's not so much being on the path of gnosis that is a relationship ender although it's that as well because we've had our fair share of misfires since that time since since that relationship and we've traveled to other countries to meet people, to see if the connection that we had was meant to blossom into something greater. Because we know how rare it is to find someone who's on this path. But uh, well, to tell you what's much, much, much harder for, for someone to accept is someone who's on the path of the bodhisattva being a gnostic is is hard enough but uh being on the path of uh the bodhisattva is 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 even harder because it's a lifetime of suffering and sacrifice for humanity well how many women do you know are looking for a male partner who's on the path of suffering and sacrifice for humanity women are very practical generally speaking and uh, most people on a first date right or in a relationship they their women are thinking about you know households and possibly children and poss you know and vacations and futures and you know what what is our future going to look like well we can't offer anybody any type of comfort and security because that's not that's not what's conducive to someone who's on the path of the bodhisattva. So as a result, it's very, 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 very difficult, even so much so that, that um, 
just one moment here. Um, <clears throat> we just uh, offer you the correct spelling of Ajax. There's no point in us spelling it out, E-A-G-E-A-C. And it stands for international gnostic something something we can't even remember what it stands for anyway they they changed the name of it they they took the word gnostic out of it yes it does mean that it's very difficult for many gnostics to practice the sexual part of gnosis because they're alone they're singles which is why we often share with you the Vairoli Mudra and the Pranayama, which are practices that a single person can do, uh, a bachelor or bachelorette. And it is far more important, far more important to do the work that we're talking about now in this shadow work anyway, because you can do all the sexual alchemy you want. If you're not comprehending your egos, you're just awakening as a Hasna Muslim. You're awakening in your egos. You're awakening as a demon. If you practice sexual alchemy without doing the so-called shadow work, without working on your egos, without comprehending your, your egos, then you will be awakening your consciousness that's still bottled up inside of the egos. And invariably, you will, you will end up in your sexual alchemy practices, you will end up falling more and more. Your, your sexual alchemy, your, your white Tantra will become first gray Tantra and then will become full-blown black Tantra. If you are not working on egos, it doesn't matter if you and your partner are the most fervent Gnostics who ever lived. If you're practicing sexual alchemy but, but not working on eliminating the egos, your white Tantra practice will become gray Tantra and then black Tantra. Because you're going to be empowering the demons inside of you. The egos inside of you are going to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger the more you harness the sexual energy. And they're just going to be biding their time. They're patient, our egos are. So it's much better as a single person to do this so-called shadow work, to spend the time in meditation, to spend the time in contemplation, to work on our inner demons and comprehend them so that when we do finally meet the individual that we are meant to be with, we can make tremendous progress in a very short period of time working with white Tantra with them, working with alchemy. Because we have, we have already comprehended so many egos that our Divine Mother has them basically just waiting, waiting for her to, to incinerate them. And transmute them and, and into our solar bodies. All right, there was another question earlier about Zoloft and antidepressants. Esther asked, Zoloft and other antidepressants. Um, we've suffered from depression for many, many, many years. Now, depression is deep-seated subconscious anger. It's raging anger. And we have a video that talks about 
uh, was a live stream that talks about how to deal with anxiety, stress, and depression. And what we can tell you is that these antidepressants might make you feel better, but they are not getting at the cause of your depression. And if you if you take these antidepressants and you start feeling better, you will you will you won't know what to observe. You will be robbing yourself of the opportunity to observe yourself because the antidepressants make the pain go away. So if the so if you have no suffering, then how do you know to observe yourself to find the causes of suffering when, you, when the suffering is gone? Now, one of the important things to remember about anger is that anger often works with other egos. So a deep to say that depression is deep-seated subconscious anger, yes, that's true. However, in our particular case, our demon was is fear. And fear turns to anger because in many, 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 many different examples, we can see how fear turns to anger, even in the expression fight or flight. So anger very often masks. Anger is often just the last straw. It's the final expression of some other originating ego. So fear can turn to anger, envy can turn to anger, pride can turn to anger, so can shame, so can lust. So what we need to do then is observe ourselves and really observe and watch carefully when we lose our temper and when we become frustrated and what what's beneath what's behind that anger and frustration because in our particular case depression would come and go like we would have bouts of depression for a time and then we would be okay for a time and then we would have another bout of depression and very often it was it was cyclic and it was regular like clockwork and later on most recently it was related to phases of the moon so we could be damn sure that during the full moon cycle our depression would come back so karen says you can still feel pain on depression meds I do. I'm able to rise higher when my depression is under control. What we need to do, though, is comprehend what is it that what is it that we're angry about? Because you can do that. You can meditate on that. You can be honest with yourself, right? There is something inside of you when you are depressed, that's raging. Well, it, things don't rage for no reason. Egos are reactive. Anger is reacting to something. 
or anger is expressing because another underlying ego is reacting to something. Disobey says, I found antidepressants made it much easier to be swept along with the inanity of everyday shallowness. I was on them for most of my adult life and took myself off them two years ago. Karen Johnson says, I'm not angry. I have an actual chemical imbalance. Sure, that's what your doctors and your psychologists tell you. Yeah. But what's causing, what's causing the actual chemical imbalance? It's not, it's not by accident. There's something that's causing that. Okay, well, you know that you cannot spell trauma without aum. Trauma doesn't cause anything. Trauma brings something to the surface, which was already there. The next part of this talk, if we get to it, is, is going to be about karma. Trauma is attracted into our lives based on past karma. So what people call trauma, and they believe that trauma is actually causing something, trauma is triggering something which is already there. The, your, remember, you're speaking to someone who suffered from not just depression, but bipolar and, well, full-blown full epilepsy for decades. Someone who went through the allopathic medical system and was told that we were going to have a quarter of our brain cut out. Right? We went through all that, that, that process, being told how epilepsy is a physiological disorder, et cetera, et cetera, and our depression is physiological and chemical and hormonal and all this kind of stuff. But here we are today, 99.9999999% seizure-free and no longer suffering from depression. And our brain wholly intact. We never went through with any lobectomy. We never allowed them to butcher us. So, but we also encountered face-to-face -face the cause of our epilepsy, the cause of our depression, the cause of our bipolar behavior. And we can guarantee you that it's not chemical. It's not hormonal. Those are effects. Those are not causes. Those are effects. They can, it's the same way that if you were to open up a, your computer and you were to observe the electricity 
running across the circuit boards. And if your computer was malfunctioning, your computer was infected by, uh, your computer was malfunctioning, you'd say, well, I know what the problem is. The problem is all this, this, this energy going the wrong way on these circuits. And then you would start to try to manipulate that energy, that flow of the, the electricity on the circuits by rewiring things or by, you know, by putting things on the circuit board. But the reality is that malfunction is being caused by software. So modern, modern contemporary psychology and, and allopathic medicine looks at the brain and says, oh, something's, something's on the fritz. And they look at the, 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 the hormonal levels. They look at uh, uh, neurotransmitters and they look at electrical activity, EEGs and MRIs and whatnot in the brain. And they say, well, we know what the problem is. And they start manipulating those physical things, neurotransmitters and hormones and, and, and chemical imbalances and, 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 and electrical signals. And in my case, they, want, they wanted to go so far as actually cutting out parts of my brain where there seemed to be the malfunction. Well, we'll just remove that part of the brain and then, the, and then we'll get rid of the malfunction. But is that really... Is that really what's going on in a computer when it's malfunctioning? That it's a physical hardware problem? Or is it a software issue? Is it a malware issue? The computer's been overrun by a computer virus. And if it's true compute for computers, that the smarter way to deal with malfunctioning hardware is to seek out the erroneous software, the malware, which is causing the malfunction, why would it be different in the electrochemical computer called the brain and the physiological machine called the human body? Why is it only a hardware issue over here? But over here in computers, 99.99999% of the time, it's a software issue. But we're convinced over here that it's always a hardware issue. And why are we convinced of that? Because some very convincing doctors, some very convincing psychologists or whoever told us. But those doctors and psychologists know absolutely nothing about what we're speaking about here today. Zero. Absolute zero. They would tell you that the ego is useful and beneficial and natural and that you should embrace it because fear is very useful and practical, they will tell you. All animals have fear. Look how well it works for them. It keeps them alive. You have, to, you have to harness your fear or your anger or whatever because, hey, that's what's going to get you ahead, Like just like the animals, right? Survival of the fittest. That's what they'll tell you. Because that's what they were taught. But everything they were taught, they were taught by the Black Lodge, which is the egos. So, um, we've got quite a bit of, uh, let's just uh, jump back here. Uh, Antidepressors anti messed up my neurons for a moment. Um, I'm better without 
it was worst uh, for my health with, sorry, there's some stupid uh, thing coming. Okay. Antidepressants messed up my neurons for a moment. I am better without. It, it was worst for my health with all sides effects and everything anyway. And Karen says, my point is that some people will commit suicide if they're too depressed. If it helps them, it should not be dissuaded. There may be situations where someone is so far gone that uh, they need uh, some form of assistance, some form of crutch to get them through the hard times. But someone who would commit suicide due to depression, they need more than chemical help. And providing them chemical help is maybe okay, but that way you can leave them alone because they can't be trusted to be by themselves otherwise. But what really, who is that really helping? Because the number one, the number one support that an individual suffering from depression needs is to know that they're not alone, that they're not carrying that burden by themselves. And that they're not forsaken and they're not a hopeless cause and a hopeless case. To, to go along and say, okay, here, you can take this pill now. Now we can trust you to be your to, to, to be on your own, that we're not you're not going to take your life. That's to us, that's doing the actual opposite of what that individual needs. And what that's what's actually going to help that individual because putting someone like that on medication is basically saying well okay we can extend your life and we can take this thing called depression and suicidal thoughts we can take it we can push it down the line and you'll have to deal with it at some future date but at least it won't be my problem in the meantime, I can pat myself on the back for making you feel better for not taking your life right now. Okay. Have you just delayed the inevitable? What have you done really? Th these, are, these are difficult, ethical, philosophical questions, no doubt. But like, like most allopathic healthcare, Contemporary uh, psychopharmacology has no interest in curing disease, in curing mental illness. It, it, it believes that its mission is to treat symptoms. And if it can treat symptoms, then its work is done. But that's not the work that we're talking about doing here today.
Um, now, they may be over-medicated. Genevieve says, Karen Johnson, because they did not know how to do the work. I know how to do the work, and I take a low-dose antidepressant. Everyone needs to do what's best for them, is all I'm saying. Okay, so we have a back and forth that was going here. as an extreme story. Also, many are taking too much meds or are on the wrong ones. Well, our story may seem extreme to you, but we, but to us, someone who's suicidal, that's far more extreme than our situation was. We were never, we were never going to take our own life. We only had, we, we, we had a, a short bout with suicidal thoughts back when we were a teenager, but that was years and years and years before. And Karen says, I'm speaking of personal experience. And if you talk to a doctor, he will find you another sickness. Big farm, a money issue. Karen says, it's not an either or. You can both control your depression and rise higher. I'm a perfect example. Okay. So the issue, the issue here. comes down to anytime we have discomfort, anytime we're suffering from pain of any kind, that is a way that we are being signaled to pay attention. So if you, if you take depressants to assist you with your pain, to assist you with the suffering, to allow you to function, okay, but if you use those, depress those antidepressants as an excuse and as a rationalization to say, well, I'm perfectly fine, I'm making advancements, it's just a, it's just a neurochemical problem just a chemical imbalance, then you are avoiding the truth. That there is no such thing as just a chemical imbalance. There isn't. And if you're blaming it on a trauma, without meditating on the trauma, without examining what was triggered by that trauma, what caused the trauma, because trauma is not caused by an event. If you are not getting at the underlying causes, if you're not accepting that there's an underlying cause that's behind your depression for which you are experiencing a chemical imbalance and for which you are taking these medications, then, then there's a disconnect. And... Uh, And it would be it would be advantageous for you to consider um, taking a a fresh look at your experience 
Well, we're not assuming anything. We're responding to what you have said so far. Right? We can tell you what depression is from our own experience. It's not a chemical imbalance. That's a side effect. And that you suffer from anger and it's being expressed right now. You just expressed it. You're being frustrated and you feel like you're being judged and you feel like we are assuming and how dare someone assume this or that and, and claim and, 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 and insinuate that you're foolish. We were doing no such thing. That was your interpretation of the events. So there is something that caused those thoughts to arise and for you to express them the way you did with anger, with frustration, with, with um, uh, having taken offense. Right? No one can offend you. No one can offend anyone. We offend ourselves. We receive something and it's processed by our egos and they tell us to be offended. That's how being offended works. So there is a link from nousis.com. That's an article that we wrote on the secret to overcoming trauma, which we can share with you. You are offended, and now you are trying to laugh it off, and now you're trying to make us seem like a fool, right? So now it's because you're, you're afraid of what other people think, and you're afraid of what being judged. But this is something that this is, we're not assuming anything, because we're not assuming anything. We are responding to the facts. Now, if you're saying that your behavior is motivated by something else, then we're doing no such thing. We're doing no such thing. We're doing no such thing. But if you observe objectively what you're feeling and this, this interaction, if this is what's going on in your subconscious mind all the time, now you know why you're depressed. Because the energy, the effort, the, the, what's happening with you in your mind and what's spinning and you cannot stop, you cannot stop to react. And now you can see through this, now this is all of a sudden occultic dialogue. You cannot see objectively what is taking place in your own mind and in your own emotions. You're pointing fingers and you're blaming on, you're blaming us, you're blaming now the cultish dialogue, you're blaming everything, just as you want to blame the chemical imbalance, right? So what's causing you to want to blame everyone and everything except then what's preventing you from looking objectively at yourself in this moment, objectively? Because rest assured, if what you have been exhibiting on the surface is going on beneath the surface in your subconscious mind 24 hours a day, 
that drain of energy is precisely that number one symptom of depression where you feel like you can't even get your pull yourself out of the bed in the morning <clears throat> that's because things are raging in your subconscious mind they can they won't stop they won't let up they can't we're speaking to you from our own personal experience we suffered from depression for decades, decades, <clears throat> decades. So we're trying to help you. We're trying to show you what it is, the process that is required for you to overcome your depression. And pointing fingers and laying blame is not the way. It's not the way. Joseph Alexander says, I'm sure there's already been a video covering it that may have been missed with a light mention of some celtic origins whether it's noted as folklore or mythology knowing everyone's mental and environmental factors are different i found that a healthy degree of solitude helps with a more than leisure exposure to raw nature i found it personally healing also being off meds quitting the meds the past three plus years Oh, well, who is we? Um, and oh my God, I'm not depressed thanks to my meds. Well, all right, we're happy for you. And who is we? I am nothing. I am nothing. I am just a mortal vessel and messenger for my innermost being, Atlas. Right? I, Attila... That's my given name, my birth name. I'm nothing. This physical body, this person you see before you, is just a mortal vessel. I don't write the blog articles. I don't make the videos. I don't do these live streams. Atlas works through me. And who is Atlas? Atlas is my innermost being and my divine mother. And he's an individuated essence of the Logos. Alux, all light and godlike, the Logos. That's why we, because I am not an I. I don't matter. I'm insignificant. Uh, It may feel like that disobey, but that's not the case. We know people troll. And that's that's not the case in this case. That's not the case. It's just someone who's someone who is dealing with what they're dealing with at the level that they're at to deal with it. That's all. That's all. We all have to walk. We all have to crawl before we walk, before we run. All of us. All of us. At some point in our life, we're crawling before we were walking, before we were running. Right? None of us came out of the womb enlightened none of us so we all have we all have our own we all have our own journeys to take no 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 joseph your comment was was apropos there was nothing 
was your comment about being in nature and being having solitude and and it's and listen we should all feel free to share our own experience right and if and we should all you know be aware that if we're here for if we're here in this live stream especially on we're talking about doing shadow work then then we should look to expand what works for us and what has worked for us and share what has worked with us with others and also share what we know about different approaches because some of us who have tried many different things well it's worthwhile it's worthwhile having a conversation and we're just having a conversation nobody is forcing anything upon anybody here we're just trying to share the facts but sometimes sometimes new information rubs us the wrong way and sometimes we can feel like we're being it's a personal attack it's, nothing could be further from the truth but that's fair and no one says that anybody has to do anything of what look we're just a messenger we're just planting seeds that's all that's all and any of you sharing what you have to share you're just doing the same genevieve says there is also some good herbs that help sometimes to calm the mind in terms of calming the mind look in our own in our own experience We've taken magnesium. We've uh, we've dipped ourselves in Epsom salt baths, which is supposedly to cool and calm the uh, the central nervous system. And uh, we've drank uh, chamomile tea and other types of herbal teas that are supposed to calm and soothe and you know and and uh, you know make someone more tranquil and so and so. So we've we've in our day we've did a lot of of uh, different. Um, sorts of remedies we never went as far as um uh taking uh cannabis oil or smoking weed or because that was recommended to us actually as a possible um uh therapy i guess for our epilepsy for our seizures it was recommended to us that we either smoke weed or or eat, eat edibles or, or take medicinal marijuana and Again, we said, well, okay, it might it might help with the seizures, but what sort of an effect will it have on our meditation? What sort of effect will it have on our clarity, on our ability to observe ourselves? Because now there are different there are different types of uh, compounds in uh, cannabis. Which, which have different effects, and some of them don't have psychoactive effects, supposedly. But for epilepsy, you have to have the ones that do, right? Because otherwise, it doesn't have an effect. So regardless, that we, we ran the gambit. Remember, we suffered from epilepsy for decades, right? So we went all the way across this wide spectrum of, of so-called remedies and approaches. And there were, there were all, there were like, uh, medications and, and some one one neurologist put us on a medication that resulted in psychotic behavior it was an experimental drug that he put us on 
and and it ended up causing us a psychotic it gave us psychotic episodes in other words it was stimulating the very demon we were trying to overcome was coming out in absolutely uh i mean terrifying ways is really the best way to describe it so uh, we, you have to appreciate that someone doesn't go in, end up in a hospital for exploratory brain surgery, unless someone has exhausted a whole spectrum of therapies and of uh, medical approaches. So when we finally arrived at what the solution was it was because we surrendered i surrendered to my innermost i said you help me beat this epilepsy thing and i will de devote the rest of my life to you because clearly i'm not qualified to walk this journey to walk this path and to make the decisions and that leads into the second topic that we have to talk about today. But um, as Azel says, had to buy something to eat, so I couldn't see if you replied. But I had a question in relation to the negotiation of karma. Can you ask for things to become worse? Can you ask for things to become worse? You want things to be worse, Azazel? Is that, do we understand you, your question correctly? We're going to come to the negotiation of karma. We're touching on it now with our own story about epilepsy. But um, that's interesting. Can you ask for things to become worse? So in other words, you want to pay more karma. For I suppose supposing I suppose that you can. But to what end and to what purpose? That's what you'd have to clarify. Karen says, Are you popular? Because I find you condescending. Karen, we have no interest in being popular. We're not here to be popular. We're here to speak the truth. And very rarely are truth speakers and messengers popular. Uh, we are we are used to we are used to people wanting to shoot the messenger. So we we don't care what other people think of us. We're not here to we're not here to gain followers. We're not here to gain uh, reputation. We're not here asking for money. Um, we're only here to say and share what we need to say and share for your benefit and for everyone's benefit. That's all that matters. Uh, disobey. Passion flower helps me with anxiety. 5-HTP for mood when coming off allopathic melatonin at night also. It's all individual though. Might not work for all. Well, that's many of these herbal remedies and so on. It is, it is, very, um, it is very dependent on the individual. Not everyone responds the same way. Serena says ashwagandha or 5-HTP, also a colon liver detox, can help or somatic therapy. I had some results with prayer and repentance, also prayers of others for myself. 
for the inherited transgenerational patterns, I can recommend family constellations as a therapy. Uh, Genevieve says, I eat marijuana and I can remember the feeling of anxiety. I eat or I fear. Uh, there's a typo there. So I, I, don't, I don't think you meant I ear marijuana. So um, in any case, let's see if we can wrap up shadow work and then we can get on to the, uh, the bit about karma. But uh, we have a conversation. So, yes, because through pain, I've learned a lot of things here. So did you say, Genevieve, I ear marijuana? And I can remember the feeling of anxiety? We're not, under, we're not sure what you mean by that. I ear marijuana. You hear marijuana? You ear marijuana? Or, we're not sure what you mean by that. And I can remember the feeling anxiety. Azazel says he wants to ask for more karma because through pain, I've learned a lot of things. Okay. All you really need to do then is pray right? And be patient. Because we don't we don't how does one how does one say this? Our progress down here, remember, we're just a mortal vessel. That's all we are, right? I'm just a servant. I'm a physical body and a personality. I'm a character in this MMORPG we call life. That's it. My progress is not my progress. It's our progress. It's, it's Atlas's progress. So Atlas is undertaking initiations in the supernal worlds. And Atlas must prepare for those initiations in the supernal worlds. In the meantime, I must do what, what I must do. But if what I must do is wait, then I must wait. And I must do what I can do, and what I'm told to do, in preparation for the whatever that next initiation, that next test, that next ordeal, which will be mirrored down here. And that ordeal will often include quite a bit of suffering, a challenge, a test, a temptation. One or more egos will be involved and, and we will have to face those egos in that test, that trial. But whatever is going on down here is a mirror, is a shadow of the initiation which is taking place in the supernal worlds. So if what you're asking for is more karma, more difficulty now because you learn a lot from it, 
well, just realize that you learning a lot from things happening to you down here is a reflection of what your innermost being is learning in his initiations. And that you cannot rush those. You have no power over that. You are just a vessel. You are just a servant of your innermost, of your true self. So your next tests, trials, and ordeals will come when your innermost is ready to face them. Because if you're honest with yourself, the only trials and ordeals that you've ever overcome in your life, your innermost has overcome them. And your innermost was working through you in overcoming the test trials and ordeals down here. And it was, it was our own lack of awareness, our own lack of consciousness to be able to distinguish and differentiate between the I and the being that meant that we just took credit for all, we just took credit for everything. But the reality is that every good thing you've ever done in your life, anything that was any, anything of any real worth, any real meaning, any real sense of purpose, any real sense of accomplishment for the benefit of those around you, for the benefit of the world at large, all of that was working through you. It wasn't coming from you. And if you take credit for it, and if you believe that, no, 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 it was all me, it was all me, well, then you're, you, you, you have a lot of work to do. Because, as we said before, you and I do not ascend. You and I do not go into the supernal worlds. This physical body, this personality, this is born from the earth, and it's going back into the earth. period expecting this self this self that you see if you're expecting to see this self sometime in the supernal worlds you're going to be disappointed because this self cannot go into the supernal worlds any more than super mario can come out of the uh, out of the nintendo and sit on the couch next to you right you play Super Mario, right? And you watch Super Mario on the screen jumping and bouncing around and doing everything and you're pressing the controller, right? You are the player in that scenario. But in this scenario, we, you and I, are Super Mario. And we have an innermost player you and I will remain inside this Nintendo game, this MMORPG, this Matrix, right? That's, this is where we belong. So everything, everything that happens on this level of reality, this so-called physical reality, everything that happens on this physical reality is caused by causes which do not exist on this physical plane. Because the foundation of physical reality is energy. That's the fourth dimension. The ninth sphere on the tree of life. That's the fourth dimension. That's 
electromagnetic energy. That's when Nikolai Tesla and Walter Russell say that the universe is electric. Well, because it is. This physical plane that we experience is caused by the foundation of electricity. That, that does not exist on this plane of existence. Electricity and electromagnetism are energetic. They, do not, they, they are not physical. All of physicality is an illusion. Likewise, every desire that you have, every urge that you have, every physical sensation that you feel does not exist on the physical plane. All your desires, all your cravings and aversions come from your egos, which are in the subconscious conscious, which are below this physical plane. Are the, they are in the infernal worlds, also known as Klipoth, also known as the lunar astral plane, also known as psychological hell. And every intuition you have, every insight, every imagination, every feeling of love, all of that comes from the supernal planes, your innermost being, from the monad, in the sixth dimension. Just as all your thoughts and emotions are from the fifth dimension. And everything coalesces and is experienced in this virtual reality, which we call the physical universe, the physical plane. Malkuth in Kabbalah, the kingdom, also known as the kingdom in Kabbalah. But nothing of what happens here is caused by something here. Any more than you playing a video game, that the, the 3D virtual world, that if you put on a virtual reality helmet and enter into a virtual reality world, that virtual reality world is just that, virtual. None of it exists in the 3D space, which is conjured for you inside of that virtual reality, inside of that matrix. Oh, Genevieve, you don't have to apologize for being French. It's just this statement, I ear marijuana and I can remember the feeling of anxiety. Um, it, it, it just doesn't, we just don't understand what, is, what, you're, what you're saying. That's all. That's all. Um, and if what you mean is you hear marijuana and you can remember the feeling of anxiety, that's different. That makes a little bit more sense. Azazel says, thank you for your insightful reply. Yes. It is up to my innermost through me, but prayer for it seems to be a good thing to start with, right? I'm not the landlord of this body. The reason why we say prayer is because when you're negotiating karma, you do pray to the lords of karma. And you basically what you're saying is you're making a deal. You're making a bargain with God. And if you know the expression of making a bargain with the devil, making a deal with the devil, you know what that's like because that's been covered from Faust to, uh, I don't know how many different stories, right? There's been of, of this cliche of making a deal with the devil, selling your soul to the devil, right? It's even in cartoons, in Looney Tunes cartoons, right? There's cartoon character or whatever, and he, he signs his soul over to the devil. And even it, it wasn't, it even took, even in Homer, uh, what do you call uh, The Simpsons, right? Homer sold his soul to the devil, I, we believe, for a donut, or a box of donuts or something like that. Um, so that that exists. And we all know that that happens 
every day of our lives where we are tempted to sell our soul for to to the devil to our egos right but what if what if the reverse was possible what if you could make a deal with god and the deal that you made with god was what if the deal that you made with god or anubis and the lords of karma was to bring balance back into your life. If you owe a lot and you're asking for an alleviation of that suffering, right? You're going to have to offer something, right? To, to, to bring those scales into balance because Anubis and the Lords of Karma are actively balancing the credit and debit system of energy in the universe. Because when we talk about the law of three and the positive and the negative energies, they have to be kept in balance. And the great law of cause and effect is managed in order to keep these energies in balance. And the, as we've, we mentioned in, when we uh, did the live stream, which focused exclusively on this topic the the physical phenomena known as banking is a degeneration a material degeneration of karma where the idea that you store value in a vault and that you can lend it out and and the, the entire economy is and economics as we know it is this physical shadowy reflection of the law of karma in supernal worlds that's why bankers or the banksters if you want to use that terminology uh believe themselves to be gods here on earth and they and they 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 act like gods because they have all the power and they can make or break uh, make or break not just businesses and corporations but entire countries entire nations they can cause wars to come into being and they can end wars with the snap of their fingers that type of power that type of control uh really goes in the hands of the ego well we know what the result is the result is the world we live in today but that is a shadowy that is the shadowy underbelly. That is a shadowy reflection, a, a, a degeneration, a corruption of what is managed in an intelligent and loving and just way in the supernal worlds when that's the law of karma for the universe. So if we all owe something, we've drawn down on that system. So we are in debt. We have a karmic debt to pay. Well, it's not beyond the realm of imagination to approach the lords of karma, Anubis in this case, and kneel down and pray to him and offer him 
another way of repaying that karmic debt. So for example, let's say you are suffering from a certain karmic malady and nothing, no matter what you do, you can't seem to comprehend what the cause is. You can't seem to get to the bottom of whatever is causing this repeating cycle of suffering or this repeating cycle of events in your life. And, and you feel that it's karmic, you feel that you're responsible for it, but you can't seem to get off that treadmill. And because you can't seem to get off that treadmill, the rest of your life is suffering, the people around you are suffering, and it's just, it's just all together you feel like you're trapped in this loop and you can't get out. It's events like that, it's cases like that, when if you... If we put ourselves in a very humble place and we appeal to the mercy and compassion of the lords of karma and say, if you help to alleviate this karmic burden, if you help me get off this karmic treadmill, I will do this in return. And whatever this is that you're offering to do, it must be significant and it must be contributing positively. So think in terms of karmic credits. You have debits, you have debt, karmic debt to pay, so you need to pay it back. But if the suffering that you're trapped in is causing you to accrue more karma, then you're in a downward spiral and and this is you're not you can't pay it back this way and you know that because you just you can't seem to just pay it out pay it off and get out of this trap you're stuck there so you go and you offer anubis another option a payment plan and say i devote myself to a b c d i will do one two three four And if you promise to pay back that karma in a different way, if your prayer is heard, if your prayers are answered, if your karmic struggle dissolves, evaporates, all of a sudden you're freed and liberated from that karmic burden, you had better be sure, you had better be sure that you fulfill your end of the bargain and that you do what you promised what you, in your prayer, in your offer to do. Because if you do not, if you do not, your karma will return and it will return with a vengeance. It will turn, it will return with interest. Your karmic debt will come back with interest because for the lords of karma to accommodate you they've had to shuffle around who knows what and who knows how in order to accommodate your your offer your negotiation and that karmic debt still must be paid so they now have 
this hole, they've made a hole and they're awaiting that those karmic credits to come and fill in that hole in accordance with the offer that you made, in accordance with the negotiation that you made, which they accepted. But if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, your end of the agreement, well now, now you've left Anubis and the Lords of Karma in a lurch. And now they're attempting to balance this law, the great law, and you've essentially taken advantage of them, and now they're stuck. Now they have to do something. Well, rest assured, they have the power to return that karmic debt to you. And they will return it with interest. They will return it plus all the additional energy and effort that it took to remove that karmic burden from you in the first place and to, and to put it back to you. So call it a, an administration fee, for lack of a better expression. But you can negotiate your karma. It can be done. And, and the way to do it is, as we described, you to, to, to pray to Anubis and Lords of Karma. Pray to, pray to your innermost being and ask your innermost being to travel to the temple of the great law to perform the salutations before the guardian to enter and walk the seven sacred steps into the temple and to kneel down and bow down before anubis and the lords of karma and pray and beg for them to hear hear your negotiation to hear your prayer and to accept your offer in exchange for the alleviation of the karma, which you cannot seem to overcome and you cannot seem to climb out of. That's, it's a simple process. It's no more complicated than that. But it's not to be taken lightly. And it's not to be used frivolously or regularly. But it's, it's another tool that's available to us on the path. If we find ourselves suffering and struggling with something that we cannot overcome, we can ask for a negotiation. Now, in addition to that, there is a... another... Well, we were going to say little-known practice, but it's actually a well-known belief. But it's been twisted and corrupted by the Catholic Church. And that is the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of karma. Some karma can be forgiven. It is possible. And who made it possible was Master Abramento. You know him better as Jesus of Nazareth who came and suffered and was crucified and died on the cross and resurrected and continued his ministry well into his old age. What, he, what his sacrifice for humanity allowed him to do was to do his own karmic negotiation 
on behalf of this entire humanity. And his karmic negotiation was that he had enough karmic credits that he could put toward the forgiveness of sins. Not all sins, not all karma can be forgiven. Not like the Catholics and the Christians believe that all you have to do is accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and all your sins will be forgiven. No, no, that's, no. That just does not happen. That does not work that way. But for those who are earnestly making super efforts on the path, they're earnestly working for to awaken, they're earnestly working for the sake of suffering humanity, and they're doing their best to be true to their innermost being, their innermost intimate Christ, You can ask. You can ask. It doesn't hurt to ask if you're suffering from something and you can't, you know, you can't seem to overcome it. And why can't you do a negotiation or why wouldn't you attempt a negotiation? Maybe you just feel like you're overwhelmed and you have too much on your plate and you can't commit to anything else. It's just fair. The point is that the lords of karma are far wiser than we are and they know much more than we do so if in our destiny our innermost beings mission and purpose here in life if it's in the best interest of the logos in other words the best interest of the multiplicity of all monads of all beings and we have a great tremendous potential and we're being held back by something then that what is holding us back can be forgiven in order so that we can accomplish this great work for the benefit of others for the benefit of all such forgivenesses are common we might not always recognize them we might not always be aware of them or acknowledge them as the miracles that they are. But the ability and the capacity for that to take place was itself a product of a negotiation. And again, that negotiation was the negotiation between Master Abramento and the Logos itself. That was what, that's why those words and those sentiments ended up in the Catholic faith and the Christian faith as they did, where Jesus died for our sins. Because he did. He did. Just not in the way that the Christians believe. Just not in that way. In the way that we're sharing with you today. Of course, Joseph, it is okay uh, if you share this. But also, what is NYK and niche? And what is that in what what was that in, in reference to? Nik and niche. 
we don't know what you mean by NYK and we don't know what you're asking about as what 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 is niche what if we jump back we jumped around a little bit let's see if we can't wrap up the shadow work slides did our lord jesus christ redeem both good and bad people in the world you know good and bad is this is is really just a spectrum of good Everyone who walks the path of the Bodhisattva and climbs the mountain of resurrection means that they've descended into hell to free, liberate souls trapped there, to free monads trapped in hell. So, but a Bodhisattva can only redeem those who have earned it and have and who long for freedom who long for liber for liberation so when you say bad people there are those people who want to be bad who like being bad they choose to be that way and they look upon any notion of redemption or any notion of the light as as negative so in that so th those people are lost causes you can't help you can't help people like that you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped period it and and you sh and no one should force anything upon anybody else that's what free will is an absolute law of the universe which not even the gods violate right that's why people are allowed to be so-called evil. Because the moment that someone isn't allowed to be evil, well, then that makes God a tyrant. But God is not a tyrant. So only a mere speculation. I should do some more cross-referencing of languages. Okay. Um, again, we're not sure what you're referring to, and we just we didn't know what NYK stood for. That's all. Um, Serena, I think this captured in the part with the two thieves on the cross at the crucifixion, one asking to be in heaven and the other doubting Christ. Yeah, that's that. That's what that symbolized. The uh, the. Christ between the two thieves. And yes, one, one says, but that, that whole thing is symbolic, right? That whole thing is symbolic. And but the point there is being made, right? That that I mean, I think it, I think it we don't even have to say any more on it. Disobey says, is Buddhism basically Eastern Gnosticism? Basically, yes. In Buddhism, there's there's a expression, a prophecy about the Buddha Maitreya, the one who will 
bring together Eastern and Western philosophies of Gnosis. And many believe that Samael and Mayor was that individual, was that master. Because Samael and Mayor taught both, well, not just Buddhism, but also Hinduism and all the other Eastern Gnostic traditions and philosophies, and he combined them with Christianity. That's why Samael called his school of Gnosticism Christian Gnosis, Christian Gnostics. And he revealed the, well, with the combination of Kabbalah, and, but not just that, but the Mesoamerican traditions. Because, of course, Master Samael, born in Colombia, and he practiced most uh, in Mexico. He taught, I should say, mostly in Mexico. And he brought an in-depth knowledge of the Mesoamerican, the great Mesoamerican empires, um, and the knowledge of the South American Christ, Quetzalcoatl, that the worship by the Aztecs, by the Mayans, by the Inca, Genevieve says, is it evil to have a disdain for religions or other people belief and not believe in a higher force? Belief itself? Belief itself is a form of evil. There's no other way to... to phrase that belief is hypnosis and ignorance so it doesn't matter what you believe in or if you believe those people or don't believe those people if you believe they're in their religion or don't believe they're in their religion or if you attack their religion and don't attack their religion believe in a higher force or don't believe in a higher force all of that just means that you're hypnotized and ignorant because you're trapped in belief. Belief is, a, is an illusion. It's not real. Knowledge, gnosis, self-evident experiential knowledge, that which is real is what we're looking for. And... To have a disdain for religions is to judge them and dismiss them on a superficial level. And there's many, many reasons. There's many, many reasons why one would feel the impulse to do so. Because people strapping bombs to their body and blowing themselves up in the street in the marketplace and taking 50 other people with them including women and children that is not religious that's religious that's religious fanaticism but there's nothing spiritual about that And that kind of activity is 
religious belief taken to an extreme, right? We even call them extremists. We call them radicals. We call them fanatics. But th that's all a spectrum of belief. That's But once you are on that spectrum of belief, you are already outside the realm of Gnosis because Gnosis deals in facts. Gnosis deals in knowledge, not belief. And there is a palpable difference, a scientific, objective, palpable difference. The difference being somebody telling you that the stove is hot and you going over and touching the stove. One of those acts produces gnosis. The other act produces belief. And you can, no one can tell me that being told something has the same value as going and experiencing it for yourself directly, consciously. And we know that those two things don't have the same value because nobody, nobody on this live stream would dare get into an airplane being piloted by someone who had never flown before or who had never practiced in an airplane simulator before. Someone who had only read about how to fly from instruction manuals. You would never get, you would never get into an airplane like that. This is why. Thank you for the information. We don't know what V-U-N.R-E-N-T means. Um, Uspensky had this explanation that good and evil can be relative as it varies with culture and place. What is not variable is what is mechanical or what is awake and what all evil results and that all evil results from mechanicalness. Again, this question of it's really depends on your definition of good and evil right so we have a very simple definition of good and evil that absolutely has no relativity associated with it so we're not talking about what people believe is good and evil because again coming back to what we just mentioned about belief we take an objective scientific metaphysical scientific approach to everything so to us, good is that which brings us closer to God, and evil is that which takes us further away, period. That's good and evil. Nothing else matters. What other people judge good and evil, that's morality. That's rel relative. That's relative. But ethics is not. Ethics is universal. Ethics don't change from culture to culture, place to place, time to time. There's a universal ethics. Master Samuel spoke profoundly about the universal ethics, and he said how morality is not valuable because morals change. What was moral in the time of the Greeks or the time of the Roman Empire was considered immoral just a few hundred years later. 
And then again, the morals changed again. And now today, the morals are, again, far more similar to what they were back during the fall of the Roman Empire than they were just 50 years ago. So morals go up and down. But ethics... See, philosophy is interested with ethics, not morals. And good and evil are, even though good and evil are judged certain ways and believed certain ways because they're defined certain ways, the way we look at good and evil is, again, to be or not to be. Good is that which encourages us and others to be, and evil is that which causes us and others not to be. Simple, straightforward, practical, scientific, and, and re requires no argument, requires no discussion, period. It's a, it's, it's a, the level of being is a scientific, numerical, arithmetic, mathematical fact. The amount of free consciousness you have is a scientific, mathematical fact. Now, it cannot be quantified by physical science, but it can be quantified by metaphysical science. It can be quantified, for example, by Anubis and the Lords of Karma. This is what matters if we want to be practical, right? I saw something about Gnostic, Gnostic atheism. I don't think it's possible. No, it's absolutely possible. And the reason why it's absolutely possible is because Gnosis is about evidence. And atheists demand evidence. Atheists are closer to being Gnostic than are right-wing Christians, uh, that, are, that are radical Christians or, or, or born-again Christians. Because they're, they're all lost in their beliefs. At least atheists are holding on to that twelfth of their consciousness, of their twelfth of their being known as doubt. They refuse to believe things on face value. They refuse to believe just because somebody told them to believe. That's a far more Gnostic tendency than it is to believe whatever sounds good or whatever makes you feel good or whatever gives you comfort and security. Now, the problem with most atheists is they become hypnotized by materialist science. Most atheists are very, very religious people. It's just their religion is materialist science, but they would never admit that. They would say that, no, 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 I follow the, I follow the evidence. I say, really, really? Do you believe in origin of species by natural selection? Next time you speak with an atheist, you can ask them that. Do you believe in the origin of species by natural selection? And if they say yes, then you can tell them, congratulations, you're not an atheist. You're a, you're a religious fanatic. And you worship the doctrine of Darwin, which is a theory that has never been proven. And no one who tells you it's been proven is correct. Because it, it, it has never been proven, because it cannot be proven, because it is false. Like so many other theories of materialist science, that the atheists believe as though it was sacrosanct gnosis. That, that is the mistake that atheists make in general. 
but atheists have the potential to become Gnostics quicker and easier than than uh, radical religious believers because those radical fanatics are uh, but the problem with most atheists is that they're radical fanatics of materialist science so but make no mistake the the that inner that inner uh, intuition that tells us that whispers to us we need evidence right we need evidence we need hard evidence that comes from the being that comes from consciousness the consciousness wants to know the consciousness doesn't want to believe belief is in the mind consciousness needs to know okay disobey re shadow work do you think the shamanic bond buddhist practice of chad of chad chad okay would be helpful you know what it would be helpful disobey if we knew what you were referring to we're not we're not familiar with the shamanic bond or buddhist practice of chod we don't know what you're referring to there it may be it may not be does it entail the seven steps of the alm of life if you're familiar with these things we've walked you through the seven steps that are required for the comprehension and elimination of egos. So uh, if those activities involve mindfulness, self-observation, meditation, comprehension, catharsis, elimination, awakening, then sure, then... Sorry, Chad, cutting, feeding all beings and offering your body to all beings. Oh! To be honest, what our heart tells us is this is a very, what, in meditation, not literally. Um, in meditation, we you don't have to... Um, visualize yourself there are many okay there are many many ways to give of yourself in meditation but it can be as simple as you seeing the world and visualizing a beam of golden blue light emanating from your heart and enveloping the whole world I mean, there's so many different ways to visualize you giving of yourself. And if you want to visualize yourself dying and being buried underground or being chopped up into pieces and left on the side of a cliff to be eaten by vultures and scavengers of all kinds, I mean, there are many, many, many ways that you can visualize sacrificing yourself or giving of yourself to other beings. And all of those practices 
particularly in meditation, are beneficial from that standpoint, that you are attuning your consciousness and you are, the imagination is a powerful, powerful tool, creative tool, a manifesting tool. And then if you really put your heart and your passion and your soul into your meditation, into your visualizations, that you really, you really can make a difference, however negligible on a planetary scale your single meditation can do. But does this relate to shadow work? No. No, it does not. No. It does help you align with your higher self and the 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 but it it in and of itself will not eliminate egos. In fact, you can take it to a point where it actually will strengthen egos, particularly the ego of mystic pride, which is, which is an ego that we all must be very cognizant of because it's very tempting to want to say, I am a master, I am enlightened, I am this, I am that, I am healing the world, I am doing this, I am doing that. I don't know if you, how carefully you've ever read the scriptures, but even Moses never says, I am parting the Red Sea. Moses gives his staff to Aaron, and he says, Aaron, cast my staff on the ground so that Pharaoh may know the power of God. Like, he even hands it off to Aaron to, 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 to do the act so that there's no question that Moses is just a messenger and a servant and that he's doing nothing. Everything is working through him. So, but there is no shortage of people. And, and you know them, you've seen them, you've heard them. There's no shortage of people out there and online, right? And you just, 30 seconds into listening to them, to being with their presence, into feeling their energy, and you just know, ugh, this, it's just, it's, it's just negative. It doesn't matter. They're talking about light and love, and they've got all the and they the gestures and the movements and the tone of their voice and everything, and it's just we can't watch them for more than thirty seconds because we see through all the facade. And it's just someone who believes themselves to be whatever, or they're just trying to pull a fast one. Either way. They're, they're okay, so disobey. Okay, thanks. I thought it might help because less attached to our egos. But what you say makes sense, i.e. the I, and inadvertently strengthening it. So less attached to egos. The best way to understand what an ego is and how an ego behaves is to watch five minutes on, on a tick or some intestinal parasite, worms, some other parasite, any kind of parasite you pick. Do a Google search for parasite. Do go onto YouTube and, and do a search for, uh, you know, uh, National Geographic parasites and watch five minutes about parasites and what it's like trying to get rid of a parasite. 
What parasite do you know of goes quietly into the night? You ever had a dog or some animal that gets ticks or fleas? Have you ever gotten bit, bitten by a tick or had a tick or a flea or worms or some other parasite? Are you able to detach yourself from that parasite? How about malware? Ever have any malware or spyware or computer viruses on, on your computer? Are you able to detach your computer from that malware? The answer is no, 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 and no. Parasites do not go quietly into the night. They are not, they are clinging to you. You are not clinging to them. The idea that people say, oh, let go of your ego. Just let go of your ego. Just let go of your ego. These people have no idea what they're talking about. Just let go of your ego. That is on like the first level, the first rung. Just let go of your ego. That's the level where you say, okay, don't want to be afraid. Don't want to be angry. Don't want to be envious. Don't want to be greedy. Don't want to be gluttonous. But guess what? That in and of itself just means that you will not actively be seeking that anymore. That's like the first baby step. That's it. But people think that you just let go of your ego and then your ego is going to go quietly into the night. Nonsense. Nonsense. YouTube, National Geographic, parasites. See what it takes to deworm. See what it takes to get a tick to, 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 to come out from under your skin. Or any other parasite. And you begin to scratch the surface of how egos infect us and infest us. But talk about getting under the skin. Egos are inside of our mind, inside of our heart, inside of our body. They're in our psyche. So no, no, so so it's it's Oh, listen, we all start at the same place. We all start somewhere. And listen, everybody needs to hear this over and over and over again. It really is, it really is something that we can't, we can't say enough and we can't hear enough, repeated enough times. Serena says, related to karmic negotiation, what is your perspective on karmic cleanses as a therapy performed on a patient's behalf by an energy worker or shaman who has permission to undo certain karmic entanglements. Um, permission from whom? Permission from whom? And karma, karma is not cleansed in any such way. And nobody and no one can take away your karma unless, unless they are paying it for you. And if your karma is being forgiven, you don't need any shaman or anybody else to do that for you. And if they are reversing some sort of karmic, if they are affecting some sort of symptoms of karmic debt, And again, permission from whom? 
permission from the patient's system from the field the field of what patient system you know um from my experience and understanding of shamans and shamanism it's mostly black magic no one can eliminate your karma unless they have permission from the logos from anubis and the lords of karma i'll give you an example of a story i'll give you an example of a story of master samael who who paid a young boy's karma who was to die and master samael paid his karma for him so he he remained alive this happened publicly this happened at one of his live lectures and one of master samael's uh disciples uh said to him he said can you should you really have done that could should you and and uh and master samael told him he said listen i would never put anybody's life in jeopardy if i didn't know that that uh i could succeed and master samael simply went went to the lords of karma and he says listen i have enough karmic credits that i pay this boy's karma Because remember, we have to think practically and scientifically. And we're talking about balancing universal energies. And those energies are on a much, 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 much higher plane of existence than the energies that what shamans work with. Energies in the vital body or in the mental body or in the, uh, the astral body. They're working with energies in the vital body, like Reiki masters and so on and so forth. And yeah, the shaman can get your permission. But who are you? Who are you? Who are who am I? Who am I to give anybody permission to do anything? But if somebody is performing healing, like black magicians can heal. Black magicians can heal people. But if they're healing somebody who's karmically supposed to be sick, then what they're doing is throwing a monkey wrench in the works and they're acting against God. They're acting against the great law. That's why manifesting your desires and all that manifestation stuff is all black magic. Every time you do anything or if you pray for anything, you need to end that prayer with, may all this be done in accordance with the law. May all this be done in accordance with the law. That's your, that's your safety and guarantee and that you recognize that whatever you're asking for, whatever you're praying for, whatever you're doing, whatever you're trying to accomplish, you recognize that it's your best in, of intentions for this to, to have a positive end result, but may it be done in accordance with the law. That I recognize and I'm cognizant that there is a much higher level of cosmic justice which I don't have access to and I'm not privy to that process but whatever I do may what I do contribute to that process 
may it be in accordance with that law, in harmony with the great law. And if my actions and my prayers can contribute to the unfoldment of the great law, then so be it. And if not, then let all of my prayers be disregarded. Let my longing for my good intentions be null and void unless they are in accordance with the law. I hope that answers your question. I thought that's been deep in my heart lately is forgiveness. A thought that's been deep in my heart lately is forgiveness. All these new age psychophantic spiritualists seem to think to forgive immediately is the best way. Uh, where did we hear this? There's a, there is a beautiful expression and we can't remember where it comes from. If it was Rumi who said it or it was Shakespeare, but I think it, it might have been Shakespeare. Uh, forgiveness is the scent the perfume, forgiveness is the perfume which the rose sheds on the heel which has crushed it. Forgiveness is the perfume which the rose sheds on the heel which has crushed it. That's you need more of an answer than that. Now, let us comprehend that what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Because forgiveness, we can think of, for example, what comes, what comes to our mind is women who remain in abusive relationships. Those women seem to be very, very, very good at forgiving. Do they not? They seem to be compulsive forgivers, for lack of a better expression. Okay? Forgiveness does not mean giving somebody a pass. Forgiveness does not mean closing our eyes to reality. Forgiveness does not mean remaining, like even though we say comfort and security are not our friends, okay, we have to be practical. We cannot remain in an abusive relationship where our physical and mental well-being is is being is being assaulted i mean literally assaulted we there's there's the middle way forgiving someone for their past transgressions is one thing forgiving ourselves for our past transgressions similarly right but that doesn't give us free reign to continue those transgressions. But the ego wants to make forgiveness that. Right? So we have to be 
we have to be aware of the clever and subtle ways that the adversary will take advantage because there's nothing absolutely nothing that the ego enjoys more than twisting corrupting and making fall all that is good and pure and of the light and if they can twist and corrupt forgiveness they will do so the black lodge will and they will turn forgiveness into an excuse into a rationalization into a justification to remain in a, a abusive relationship or to continue abusing ourselves or whatever the case may be so just be aware of that forgiveness is important forgiveness is a virtue but be aware that how quickly and how easily forgiveness can be twisted into something into something else so serena says ultimately from the logos yes where you were talking about permission okay and and then we have Joseph asking, Serena, are you meaning towards the borders of astrology? And Joseph uh, says, you know, I see. Dylan Whiting say, to say I forgive you so that I have peace in my heart rather than working through the transgression and actually feel the forgiveness seems karmic. Look. To, right, so, and he says, no, sir, thank you very much. Okay, so this, coming back to this point, right? Someone who has wronged us, wronged us, and we feel resentment and we harbor whatever we're harboring toward them, yes, forgiving them might alleviate whatever it is that we're harboring, that, that, that anger, that resentment, and, and so on. But take the opportunity to observe yourself and observe the pain, the, the, the suffering, the the stress that you feel in your heart. Try to become aware of what is causing that resentment, what is harboring that pain, what is, what is holding on to that stress. Yes, we advise you to forgive that individual. We advise you to you know, release that pain, release that, that, that stress so you can have peace in your heart. But not before you take a moment and recognize what it is in your heart that's holding on to it. Because, because forgiveness is great, but remember what we just said about remaining in abusive relationships and forgiving too much, too often, and too quickly. If we use forgiveness as, oh, because, well, because that's my peace, my peace, my peace, my peace, my peace is more important. So I forgive everyone and everybody all the time, willy-nilly, like this, bang, 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 bang. I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. Well, guess what? This is a kind of spiritual bypassing, believe it or not. 
because there's something inside of us that's capable of holding on to that pain and suffering. And we're not giving it a chance <laughs> to feel the pain and suffering because it's too, it's, it's too upsetting. It's too discomforting. It's too unnerving to us. So we forgive so immediately that we, that we rob ourselves of the opportunity. And then you realize, okay, well, what is getting me to forgive so quickly? Well, to, to avoid the pain, to avoid the suffering, and then spiritual bypassing. And then you see, you can go down these rabbit holes. And there, and there it is. At the bottom of that rabbit hole, you'll see that little ego, that little demon, pulling the strings and pulling the levers and pressing the buttons. That is shadow work, right? That is shadow work. This is what we're, this is what we're 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 talking about when we talk about shadow work. The alm of life. Okay, this is what it's all about. Because we want to, in order to heal the world, we have to heal ourselves. You can't have peace in the world without peace in yourselves, in in, in yourself. And you cannot expect peace and happiness and joy to enter into your world so long as the sources of pain and suffering and stress and anxiety and depression are inside of you bringing those circumstances into your life that's triggering and causing more pain and suffering and anxiety right we the law of attraction where we attract what we are and we attract what we need in order to trigger what's deep, deeply hidden inside of us, the phantom menace that we can then bring into the light of Lucifer so that the force can awaken. Again, watch our video on the Skywalker apocalypse. Okay, so again, very quickly to uh, round out because we're almost at three-hour mark. So here, from villain, we can rise to hero. Okay? And remember what we said, right? We started out as a villain. We are all a villain. We are all a trickster, a criminal, an elitist, a raider, a victim, a tyrant, a destroyer, a slave, a follower, a seducer. All of these different archetypes exist inside of us to one capacity or another, right? To one degree or another. Maybe we have to make this bigger. To one degree or another. But as we comprehend the egos which empower the villain, which define the villainy, as we comprehend and eliminate those egos and we free the consciousness, we reabsorb that consciousness. In other words, we integrate the consciousness and we integrate the knowledge of good and evil, meaning we recognize what made us a villain now what makes us the hero the free consciousness that we put in the hands of our inner hero our higher self our true self our innermost intimate intimate christ this is the process of mastery but you can't be both hero and villain 
the I, this is this is a false notion that the integration of the shadow is that you you somehow you become and you 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 step on the border of hero and villain and you're both but neither and that's what mastery is no this is this is a wrong nihilistic ego intellectual approach which has no basis in metaphysical science it has no base it has no practical application which is why so many Jungian psychologists have abandoned is even psychoanalysis and now they've gone to psychopharmacology because they're unaware of the underlying metaphysical science behind all of this that inspired all of Jung. But he just couldn't, there were, he just, he, he was there, he was scratching at the door, he knew about the subconscious, he knew about making the, uh, the uh, unconscious conscious, he knew so much about so much. But then his ego intellect got in the way and it sanitized things to the point where it, it now ends up today in the new age of shadow work and people have no idea what they're doing. They're creating Hasna Musan of themselves. They're creating black magicians of themselves, demons. They don't know what it takes to actually do the work. Okay, so with this, we want to then finish putting Jung into context by sharing, because we don't want to sweep him under the rug, okay? Listen to some of the other things that he said. A man who has not passed through the inferno of his passions has never overcome them. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. Everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. These are the words of an esotericist, a seasoned mystic and a Gnostic. That the people coming into our lives are mirrors for ourselves. They're triggering that within us, which is actually what's irritating us. And a man who has not passed through the inferno of his passions has never overcome them. We have to face our demons. And our demons are in hell. We have to go into the inferno of hell. We have to. If we've never done that, we've never overcome our demons. This is what the shadow work is. Right? Theseus, who goes down, Theseus, who goes down uh, into the labyrinth to slay the Minotaur. Perseus, who goes down into the labyrinth to slay Medusa. The demoness with all the serpents on her head, right? Each one of those serpents represents a different ego. That's what the that's what Medusa represents. The demon of Medusa represents our own egos. Okay. Your visions will become clear only when you can look into your own heart, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. Again, 100% the words of an esotericist, the words of a mystic, the words of a Gnostic. I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. This is how Jung looked upon things such as trauma. Trauma, circumstances, individuals, insults, attacks. All of those are just circumstances. You take two individuals, you take identical twins, born at the same time, raised in the same family. 
sent to the same war, to the same regiment, to the same company. They experience more or less exactly the same battle. One of them returns a hero, the other one returns shell-shocked. They went through the same traumatic experience. One of them comes out out of it a hero, the other one comes out shell-shocked. That is the true nature of trauma, and that is what Jung would have said as well. Knowing your own darkness is the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people. Again, these are, again, these are, we are putting Jung into context here. The privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. I was born Attila Lewis Lenby. We, Atlas, are speaking to you now. And we, Atlas, are just an individuated essence of Alux, the Logos. It is a privilege of a lifetime to be here speaking to you from our heart and sharing with you all that we share with you here and now in this moment. It is a privilege of many, many, many lifetimes. Even a happy life cannot be without a measure of darkness. And the word happy would lose its meaning if it were not balanced by sadness. Love is severity and mercy. In balanced measure, applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom. It's never going to all be rainbows and unicorns. And the New Age people who want it to be that are missing the point. They're missing the point. They need to read Hamlet's speech from Act 3. Scene 4. I'm going to remember what scene it is. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by avoiding end them. And the rest of that speech is the whole, is the whole of the journey, is the whole of the path. And it is expressed here by Carl Jung in a single sentence, in a single turn of phrase. Nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on their environment and especially on their children than the unlived life of the parent. For all of you who have children or are considering children, meditate on this line. Meditate on this. We should not pretend to understand the world only by the intellect. We apprehend it just as much by feeling. Therefore, the judgment of the intellect is, at best, only the half of truth and must, if it be honest, also come to an understanding of its inadequacy. Carl Jung suffered tremendously and other Jungian psychologists, including our modern day Jordan Peterson, he suffers tremendously because he's stuck. He is so trapped in his own ego mind, in his own intellect, 
but he's like a cat scratching at the door of Gnosis, right? He's wanting to get out. He knows it's in there. He knows it's out there, but he's just, he's trapped in his own reliance on his own ego mind. And, and he's, he's, he's dishonest with himself. He has not come to recognize and understand the inadequacies of, of the tools that he's using. Jung recognized those inadequacies. But what he was unable to do was synthesize and he tried to. And that's what we ended up with the shadow and the understanding of the shadow self and his, his worldview of the self. He did his best to synthesize those two things. But he suffered tremendously trying to do it. The meeting of two personalities is like the contact of two chemical substances. If there is any reaction, both are transformed. Again, um, what Jung was referring to as personality here and a lot of the personality types and stuff come from Jung. Again, it's this, it's this either inability or unwillingness to recognize the effect of ego on our lives and how what he's referring to here is the chemical reaction between egos. Because personality types, that's one thing. I mean, you know, we all meet people of different personality types and and we have probably, all of us, had romantic relationships with people of personality types which, generally speaking, don't get along. But we had fantastic relationships to them because we had chemistry despite the fact that we had our personalities conflicted. But we had tremendous chemistry. Well, how is that possible? Because chemistry happens beneath personality. Personality is just the character. The real chemistry happens on the level of on the level of the astral body, the mental body, and beyond, on the causal body and the consciousness and the 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 buddhic body, the atman, um, the atmic body, the body of our being. If that individual is a soulmate, then we will have chemistry with them. It doesn't matter. We can be we can be physically incompatible. We can be personality incompatible. It doesn't matter. We will be compatible with them if we are their soul. We have, if we have a soul connection, and that compatibility is on that level. Where love rules, there is no will to power. And where power predominates, love is lacking. The one is the shadow of the other. This is another uh, thing that we like to share about Jung because so often, so often, spiritual aspirants seem to be seeking power. And we will often say to them, Power is the antithesis of love. And the desire for power is antithetical to the longing to be one with the source of love. Having said that, love is strength. Have you ever meditated on the difference between power and strength? Strength is force. 
but not power. So meditate on the difference between power and force. Force is a neutral term. Both power and, and strength can produce force. But herein, and this is why we focus on the modern mythology of Star Wars, the force has a light side and a dark side. The force is the force. The Sith desire power from force. The Jedi gain strength from the force. The force is the Christ, the divine androgen, positive and negative and union of positive and negative. That's the force, the force of love. Love has force. And from love, we gain strength. Jung had intuitive knowing that is far above and beyond the average person. He was an esotericist. He was a mystic. He was a Gnostic. It's just, it's just he relied a little bit too much on his intellect. And he, he because... He was a psychologist and a professor, and because of his dealings with Freud and he, 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 the way he articulated and his legacy and the way his legacy was handed down and interpreted and misinterpreted and reinterpreted and applied and misappropriated, misapplied, results in what most people understand as shadow work. But here we hope we have put him into context, contextualized him, shared with you some of the other impeccable universal truths and wisdom which which came from him which he spoke which means he had access to one way or another and which which influenced and informed his life's work so we are not trying to diminish him we are not trying to diminish what shadow work is in fact it is real and it must really be done but it, there's, a, there's a scientific process to it, and there's an objective, factual nature to shadow work, which is not reflected in the superficial, contemporary, average, and new age understanding of what, what it all means and what it all entails. So, again, we have to do, we have to go deeper, and we have to be stronger in, and we have to uh, have more intensity in our work and in our shadow work. We had some people bow out and, you know, it doesn't surprise us because we're over the three-hour mark now. Um, let us leave you with... Uh, we shared with you a little bit in our uh, discussion of shadow work the symbol of the Christmas tree and the garland and the, uh, the, the tree of life. The Christmas tree is the tree of life, the illuminated tree of life. But for us, the most important symbol of Christmas is 
the birth of Christ and the, the nativity and what it takes for the Christ to be born inside of us. And the three wise men bring their gifts to the newborn Christ. And the newborn Christ is born within the manger of the animal egos of our mind and our heart and our body. Right? This this manger, this 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 stable, this little unworthy, uncomfortable building. It's filled with straw. It stinks. It smells of manure and it smells of animals, of goats and of chickens and cows and horses and what have you. That's us. That's what that symbol represents. But there is no room at the inn. There's no, there's no room for us where there's comfort and security. To flip that around, using the law of opposites, comfort, there's, there's no room for comfort and security in our life if what we long for is to incarnate the Christ, to give birth to the innermost intimate Christ. And the wise man brings his three gifts to the table. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yes, the mind, the heart, and the body are three brains. They are in our keeping. You must admit, you have control, if you want it, over your mind, over your heart, and over your body. You have the free will to choose how to act, how to behave. When you feel an urge, you have the choice to follow through on that urge or to resist it, to comprehend it, to transform it, to transmute it. And a wise man, a wise man, a wise woman, a wise person, gives each of those three gifts to the newborn, innermost, intimate Christ. There are a number of different films that are popular around Christmas time. One of which is It's a Wonderful Life. There's Miracle on 34th Street. There's the, uh, the a Christmas Carol. Dickens, Christmas Carol. There's the Grinch who stole Christmas. These are all profound stories of transformation, of transmutation, of death and rebirth. In fact, in the case of Dickens, in the case of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge has to face three ghosts, Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. But again, three, this number three, three always plays predominantly in any discussion, in any story that relates to the Christ. 
because three is the law of three, and three is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Keter Hokma Bina. And every other trilogy, uh, Trinity from every other religion. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, etc. And it goes on and the list goes on and on. Because the Christ is the divine androgen, masculine, feminine, and union of masculine and feminine. Then there is the star in the east and following the star in the east. That single point of light and following through and traveling across the desert following the rising star in the east toward the birth of our innermost intimate Christ. Christmas is that celebration of transformation of, well, it's related to Easter because Easter, of course, is the death and resurrection. And Christmas is intimately related to Easter. There are, there are a number of other interesting films that are related to Christmas. One of which is Die Hard. And for kids, they kind of made a kid's version of Die Hard. They called it Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin. And in both cases, you have an individual who's alone, who's fallen into these circumstances where he's outmanned, he's outgunned, he's out of his league. And yet, he's able to overcome these extraordinary odds. In the case of John McClane and the film Die Hard, he has to face Hans Gruber and Hans Gruber's band of very slick, hyper-intellectual, hyper-skilled, hyper-equipped thieves who are so sophisticated and they, they come off as terrorists, of international terrorists. And they're in this tower, right? Nakatomi Plaza, which is an analogy of the Tower of Babel. And several times it, it gets blown up. The base, at the, you know, at the, 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 the roof. There's so much symbolism in that film. And people have such a passion for that film. And, and many, 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 many people will ardently and fervently defend it as a bona fide Christmas movie that they have to watch every single year at Christmas time. It, that it is a Christmas movie. Why? 
It's an 80s action movie. Just happens to be set at Christmas time. Why? Because Die Hard, believe it or not, captures the intensity of Christmas. The strength, the force of the Christ of Christmas. We don't have time to read it now. We read it on our actual live stream on, on this topic of Christmas. But we read it live in the live stream. So we'll just have to link, put the link in the description here. And our poem, Touched by the Christ, we attempted to capture the intensity of what the Christic force is. People talk about Christ consciousness, especially in the new age. Like, you know what Christ consciousness is? Read the poem and then think back, meditate on your own experiences. Those experiences, when you felt something in your heart burning, something that you had to do, absolutely had to do it and you had to do it to the absolute best of your ability not because you were being judged not because you cared what other people thought not for any external reason whatsoever you had to do it the way you did it to the absolute perfection that you were capable of because it was in you and it was entirely from you coming this longing, this absolute burning need to do. And what you ended up doing was that you even surprised yourself that you were capable of such a thing. Whatever this was, we've all had an experience of this to one degree or another. That intensity, that burning, that, that need to be, need to allow that which is inside of me to, to be born into the world through me, through my hands, through my voice, through my efforts, through my energy, through all my faculties. I have to bring all my gifts as a wise man does and give it to the Christ that is trying to be born among the animal egos of my mind, but is trying to be born into the world through this vessel, through this, this rickety old temple that's filled with animals and animal desires and animal filth. And yet, and yet I have within me these three wise men, my heart, my mind, my body, and these all the and, and and all my faculties, all my gifts to give to that Christ. And then there's that intensity that Christ is born into the world. You see, Christmas is every single moment of every single day. That's what Christmas is. Our innermost intimate Christ, moment by moment, 
birthing itself into the world through us. That is Christ consciousness. Die hard. Die hard means death, death is a part of life. So to die hard is a double entendre. It means hard to die, hard to kill, meaning if you're if it's dying, if someone is dying hard, it's hard to die, that means they're living just as hard. But to die hard in the context of Easter means someone is dying intensely, dying, intensely dying. Why? So that the Christ can be born. Dying psychologically, dying on the cross of sexuality, dying on, on to our egos, dying to our desires and passions and identifications and giving birth, giving right, born again of the waters of the spirit, allowing the Christ to be born in our stead. Sacrificing ourselves for the sake of the Christ. That, that is Christ consciousness. And that is why die hard, you know, that the Egyptian mystery schools were a death cult. So is Tibetan Buddhism. It's a death cult, meaning all of their teachings and all of their, their comprehensions about the entire path leads up to the moment of their death. And the transformative process, the man that John, John McClain becomes, the hero that John McClain becomes, by walking through hell, as Carl Jung said in one of his quotes, about walking through the inferno, and the towering inferno, no less, right? The Tower of Babylon, the erupting in flames and running around barefoot over shattered glass and if you've seen the film we don't have to we don't have to reiterate any of this imagery but we all know we all know and hans gruber and what hans gruber represents and his band of egos his legion of egos and hans gruber the false self who ends up falling Right, he falls to his to his doom, which is the fitting end to uh, 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 any villain. But bring that intensity, find that intensity. There is nothing more beautiful than a life intensely lived, Master Samael said. Connect to that inner fire. Inri, I N R I, igne natura renovator integra. The fire renews nature incessantly. The fire of the Christ, who is the fire of the fire, the light of lights, and the being of beings. So in us, we have an intimate, innermost essence, an individuated spark of the Logos, our innermost being. Of all of the symbols, of all of the things that are said about Christmas and Christmas spirit and this and that and the other thing, the illuminated tree of life, the 
force from the north, the Christic force, which descends from the North Pole, especially at this time of year during the solstice, because it's a time of renewal and rebirth. The Christic energies, the Christic forces are intensified. We have the opportunity around Christmas time. And that's why many of us experience so many arguments and fights with family around Christmas time, because the intensity is heightened. The Christic forces are heightened. They're intensified around Christmas time. That's what Santa Claus is. To the South Americans, Santa Claus was Quetzalcoatl. And he was, he was adorned in the, same, in the same colors. Red, white, and black. And also yellow, which is the gold. right? The gold of the bells, the gold of the sleigh, the gold of the wrapping, the gold of the star, the garlands, etc. That's Quetzalcoatl. That's the Christ. Long before there was St. Nicholas long before there was Krampus, long before any, all of these different pagan traditions and all these different, different characters from throughout history coming down from the North Pole and giving gifts. And they know, they, they know if you've been sleeping, they know if you've been bad or good. Well, that's the Logos. That's the great law of karma. He knows if you're asleep or awake because the Logos, your intimate innermost essence of the Logos inside of you, your innermost being, knows if you're asleep or awake. So the planet, likewise, has a monad, is a being, the body of this planet, and these Christic forces descend down through the North Pole. Because we all have seen the Taurus, right? We've all seen the electromagnetic field. We all know that it emanates and how it travels around. So at Christmas time, we have that opportunity to harness these Christic forces. And that's why it's a time of gift giving. That's why time. You ever seen those like grandmas and mothers and aunts and and so? Have do you do baking? Do you do cooking around this time? Have you ever noticed how intensely your cooking and your baking becomes around this time, or you're wrapping a presents, or people going crazy running around trying to get their last minute Christmas shopping done, and all this kind of stuff? The intensity is there. It's a time of giving. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of family. It's a time of friends. It's a time of intensely feeling that Christ consciousness within us at whatever level that we are able to feel it and at whatever label it at, at whatever level it is able to express within us and through us that's christmas forget about everything else nothing else matters honestly and truly nothing else matters christ mass christ mass A mass is a ritual, it's a rite, it's a gathering in honor of the Christ. It is what we do to serve the Christ. It is what we do to invite and imbue and welcome Christ into our lives, into our world, through that which we do. Christmas. Make it every moment of every day of your life. Your life will transform. You will transform. And your shadow work will improve. If what you 
do and if what your negotiation with Anubis and the Lords of Karma is that you promise to devote and you de and dedicate the rest of your days, every moment of every day of your life to being a servant of your innermost intimate Christ. And if you dedicate and promise Anubis and the Lords of Karma, and if you proclaim to them, I am not qualified. I'm not qualified to make the decisions in this life, in this journey. I'm just a vessel. I'm just, I'm just like, I'm like an automobile. I'm not qualified to walk this path, to walk this journey. But like a wise man, I bring my gifts and I give my gifts to my innermost intimate essence of the Christ who is qualified. And not only is he qualified, he has the strength. He has the force of love behind him. He has the intensity of every monad in the universe, including the monads of every star and every planet. in every galaxy behind him with him through him if you negotiate with anubis the lords of karma who are themselves part of the logos and you promise and pledge yourself your vehicle, your gifts, like a wise man, to give them to the Christ, your innermost intimate being, for the remainder of your days, and to serve as his vehicle and his vessel here in the world, then you can rest assured Anubis and the Lords of Karma will, will show you the way out of your karma at the very least they will show you the way out of whatever karma you're trapped in you will not be forlorn you will not be forsaken you will never be forgotten in any case but you do this and you will be moved to the front of the line because this suffering and degenerated humanity is sorely in need of bodhisattva sorely in need of those who don't talk Christ consciousness and don't talk bullshit shadow work on the internet while they smoke their weed, eat their mushrooms, and play with their crystals. No, this suffering and degenerated humanity is sorely in need of those who comprehend the true meaning of Christmas and make of their lives and live their lives with that same intensity and make every moment of every day of their life Christmas. Who work with the Christ consciousness as a palpable, burning force 
and the source of all of their strength, all of their knowledge, all of their ability, and all of their potential. You do that, and it's not that the path is going to become easier, but you will be on a different level. And that's why you're here watching this live stream. And that's why we agreed to do an afternoon live stream. For those of you who can't listen in on the American or the North American time zone. There's nothing more beautiful than a life intensely lived. And uh, so that is our gift to you, our Christmas gift to you. But it's, we're going to continue <laughs> into the, until the end of the year and into the new year and beyond. Because this is what we do with intensity, with force and with strength. Because... That's, it is what it is. It's who we are. But thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for spending this over three and a half hours together. Um, before we sign off, uh, anyone who has any other questions or comments or would like to share anything before we uh, before we sign out, um, the other question that we had was that we were wondering about is um, for anyone who's in Europe or any other parts of the world, we're wondering if we should try to do something on New Year's Eve. Because we're, we're, we, might, we might do some kind of a poll or something on Facebook to try to ascertain, A, if we did a live stream, whatever, would anybody even watch it? Uh, is it even wise to attempt it? And, and also, because there's so many different time zones, would we have to do like a six-hour live stream to like, so that we could ring in the new year with multiple different people at multiple different time zones? We're not sure. This is, the first, this is our first kick at the can at this. And we don't really know how to approach it. That's the God honest truth. And um, we feel that uh, we may as well uh, uh, put it out there. And uh, I guess we'll do some kind of a poll on the internet or something where we ask for uh, people's suggestions. And, um, and then maybe we will come up. Because um, we're, right we're right in that, right? So New Year's Eve is Friday night. So... Um, Right. So, so disobey. The point is, is that, um, oh, okay. So, um, we would do the same thing that we're doing now, which this simulcasts on YouTube and Facebook. Um, so yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's the 39th kick at the can in terms of a live stream. Yes, we understand that, but it's our first kick at the can at a new year's Eve thing. <laughs> And so, um, and uh, so it would also be on YouTube, Disobey, just like this one is, right? 
So, uh, but it's but this is simultaneously on, on Facebook. We just thought we'd, we'd we'd try to get some feedback on on Facebook. If you guys have any ideas, or if you think you would you would enjoy that, then um, that means that we would have to start at. Um, Well, we're looking at a six-hour live stream then, right? Like, because because we'd have to start at like uh, at at close to your mid close to your midnight, and then go all the way until our midnight. So that would be quite a long live stream. It would be really interesting if we could do something like watch Lord of the Rings or something like that together. But I don't know if we could do that. If we would be allowed to do that, um, I'm not even sure how we would do that technologically. If that's even feasible or possible. Or maybe everybody would watch it on their own and we would just do it on a live stream and, and be able to like talk live on, on, on stream. Because remember, the other thing too is that we can have, we average around 10 people on a live stream. So we can do a live stream where everybody's, we make it like a Zoom call. And we, it's, it's, we make it truly interactive. Right where where anybody can can log in, I think we can have up to ten people at a time. So we could try something like that, and then maybe if we put on, I don't know, put something on in the background, or 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 I, again, we're really throwing this out there. We're just sort of brainstorming because, um, but if enough people, if enough people uh, offer some feedback and suggestions as to uh, what we might be able to do, then we'll do it. Because we have no other plans for well, we you know we're not we're not uh, we're not jabbed so we can't go anywhere we're in Canada we're locked down we don't have a we don't have our papers right so we're essentially under house arrest so we can't go anywhere for any parties or anything like that not that we not that we uh, be much into that anyway but uh, so certainly we're not going to be drinking or anything else New Year's Eve so we may as well do whatever we can uh, for those of you who. Also, likewise, perhaps are locked down, have no, no nothing else to do, no place else to go. Um, yeah, so Serena, so it, it wouldn't actually be a Zoom call. It would be this live stream, StreamYards. But what I would do is I would put the link in the chat. And if you click the link, it'll open up, it'll open up StreamYards and you would be able to join um, on screen and it would be just like a zoom call but it wouldn't it would it would function as if it was a zoom call but it would still be a live stream so it would be live on facebook and on youtube simultaneously so that's the that's how that would would work in theory in theory um so for example here so for example we would do this, right? Okay, so here it is. There's the link. Okay, now, in theory, if you click that link, you will be, if you have a, a video camera or if you're on your phone, you should be able to, you should be able to click that link and then join this live stream here and now just to see if this works. Um, but anyway, that's in theory how it would work. So um, we would we would make the we would make the the link available uh, 
and then and then people could come in and log out like you can you can people can jump in and jump out over time and i think we'll have you know max 10 people on at a time or maybe it's nine people at a time or 12 it's something like that and then um and then we'll do something like that and we'll do it for the entire series and i guess we'll 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 uh we would uh we would ring in the new year like that in any case um in any case that's the idea uh hopefully it'll work we're gonna sign off then and um hopefully we'll see some of you on wednesday and again we'll we'll make an announcement in time for friday so thank you all and in peace. <laughs>